and a military veteran was playing as the Taliban, and he was moving the pieces around. He's like, okay, I'm going to nail these guys. Mm. Right, I'm going to nail these, these coalition troops. And then he paused for a moment, and he stood up. He's like, I just, you know, <laughs> what, what am I doing? Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to game designer Ananda Gupta, who is best known as the co-designer of Twilight Struggle, one of the highest-rated board games of all time. Ananda is also a veteran game designer, having worked at Breakaway, Zenimax, and Firaxis Games, where he was the lead designer of XCOM Enemy Within. He's currently a senior game designer at Riot Games. What's the first, um, and I guess it's a little different for you because you're both a video game designer and a board game designer. I usually ask, what's the first video game that you remember? That I remember playing. Yeah, that like made it, yeah, especially, you know, probably more one that like made this impact on you. Oh, uh, I, 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 oh wow, that's that's a great question because I, I learned to type on Zork, so. Oh, good. I would say Zork 1 was my, was the first video game I played. Mm-hmm. And it certainly gave me the idea that video games could be even though they're all this one was all text it was it was it was a game you know it was a puzzle game but i would say that the the video game that that probably set me most on my first on this path was load runner the old broderbund oh, okay. uh, side side view puzzle game and in that one that that one was a great a really fun game in general but it also came with a level editor right. and yep. so i was able to make levels uh, for it and i made endless endless levels endless levels of, of, of load runner and i even i even submitted load runner levels uh as a as a as a as a personal project at my school's hobby show you know, every year my school had a pet and hobby show and okay. we would bring our cats and then one year i decided to bring my parents you know original ibm pc in 1986 or 87 or whatever it was right uh with all the load runner levels that i'd made and nobody understood what it was that what i was, was going on that what was going on right. people people looked at this like wait he made the computer no no <laughs> And um, it's probably hard to explain that like you made the you didn't make the game you made the levels inside the game and like that's right I got I got a third place which was the worst uh, <laughs> but uh, that was at least in the days uh, when you still got first second and third place now at, now at my old at my old school uh, everyone gets participation ribbons but right. but I I I clearly I cl- I clearly was ahead of my time <laughs> um, and why then... did you I mean what, what did you enjoy about making levels. Why did you find that so much fun? Mostly, it was just the ability. The, the tool set was so much fun. It was. It was just the ability to, to to picture something in my head, to picture one of the problems you solve in that game, which is getting all the gold on the level right. uh, while avoiding the guards. And you can never kill the guards. You can only you can only sort of temporarily encase them in stone, and then they break out. Just the ability to kind of visualize those puzzles and put them on the screen very quickly, very right. quickly, and. Moreover, I also did a lot of vanity levels, which weren't really intended to be beaten, but just to, to, to sort of look cool. Uh, they had a few of those, you know, where they'd write, you know, they put the Brother by the logo sure, drawn right. in ladders and stuff, and I thought that was really neat. I guess it was up to you as a designer to decide whether your level was beatable or not. Yes, right. yes. I mean, I guess technically they, yeah, it didn't, it didn't validate or anything. Like, if you, put, if you put a chest in the very top row of the level, which, and no ladders leading to it, I don't think it stopped you from doing that. 
right. um, even though that meant you could you could never get there. Um, but uh, th- then the next game, the next game that was th- that that caught my fancy with the level with the level editing so much was uh, the Ancient Art of War, which was okay. I think another Broderbund title. Yeah, and that one uh, I have argued at conventions was the first RTS. Okay, uh, and. It had the strategy layer, you know, the strategy level where you move guys around on the map and then when two enemies meet, they go into this tactical module and you can see why this appeals to me, having right. worked on XCOM. Sure, yeah. <laughs> also the first double layer game. And so... So it was, it was a bit of a proto-Total War type game, essentially? Yeah, yeah, very proto. Yeah, and it was all tile-based, as you know, CGA. Uh, but it too had a level editor. And you could create... Uh, you could it was cre- tile-based, but it was real-time? yeah. Yeah, I, I mean the maps. You build the maps with tiles, but, oh, but eventually they did, then right. they just they just stitch together, and you could build levels representing whatever you wanted. I mean, you, 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 it was it was abstract. You could build a modern conflict, but you still had archers, warriors, and barbarians and spies, right. and. But but sort of abstract. This was sort of my introduction to okay. You know, you always have a, a map that is this rectangle shape, and you have these terrain types. How do you how do you how do you work within that box to create the scenario that you want to create? And you know you could the, it shipped with scenarios from Little Bighorn to Pharsalus to all sorts of you know all, this huge span of historical battles, and they were all using this this simple tool set, and that gave me great respect for what can be accomplished with a pretty simple tool set. Hmm. Well, you know it's, it's interesting that um, you know you talk about being into these games that editors and allowed you to make stuff and like. A lot of, you know, which, you know, obviously nowadays there's, you know, there's games that incorporate that directly into the game where, you know, we're about, you know, easier to generate content or, or you know, to, in a broader sense, there's just modding, right? Like, yeah. You know, there's so many games yeah. enable modding, which is great. And a lot of people um, sort of assume that what inspires people to mod is being able to share it and, like, get feedback and, like, you know, make a name for themselves and see other people pay, play their game. But, like, I, I did these things too back in the 80s i did stuff like Reddit construction set or Gate purely Maker, for or, the intrinsic value yeah like you, we just we were just creating because it just seemed amazing right it just seemed it seemed great that here's this game that i can play and then all of a sudden i can create something right to play that is just as cool as they made yeah and yeah and i think of all the stuff that must have been made back in the 80s and like they did it and then like well i got a disc what am i going to do with this <laughs> right know, there was like right there's virtually no... nothing to do with it like, no no all you did is just play it yourself and show it to your friends yeah. i I showed it. I mean, I would show it to my, you know, to my cousins who would come <laughs> over sometimes, and that was the extent of it. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you feel like you enjoyed the game more or the creation more for Ancient Art of War? For, for the first Ancient Art of War, I definitely enjoyed the creation more. Yeah. Um, the, later on, I thought the, the 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 there are two more Ancient Ancient Art of War games: Ancient Art of War in the Sea and Ancient War Ancient Art of War in the Skies, and those those had stronger gameplay mm. mechanics and. There, I enjoy I enjoyed creating in both of those as well, but but I liked uh, I yeah. liked the game more Would relative you, to that. Did you feel like you were trying to fix stuff that you didn't like about the game when you when you were working on the scenarios or? Oh um, no, not really. I, I I definitely felt like I was working within a a well defined box, which right. at the time, ironically, seemed liberating. Um, I, I, I did. I, I mean, my biggest beef with Action of War at the Sea was that the Marines seemed too powerful, right? Like, so if you're playing against the AI opponent, uh, the Duke of Medina Sidonia, right. he uh, he his his ships were always crewed by seventy five percent Marines, which was just shred you, right. just shred you. And 
And so oftentimes I would build scenarios that had very few, like I'd always define the AI opponents to not have very many Marines because I felt they were overpowered. So I guess, yeah, maybe a little bit of fixing going on. But, right, right. but of course, if you wanted to in the regular game, you never had to play against him. So that wasn't, that wasn't the end of the world. Right, right. Um, did, you, um, did you similarly have an interest in board games at this point? Uh, no, no. My interest in board games came later. Came later when I was in middle school. I got into diplomacy. I okay. got into. I, I fell in with a. I fell in with a bad crowd that introduced <laughs> me to things like diplomacy and World in Flames and wow. uh, and the original Avalon Hill Civilization board game. Wow. Okay. And well, back, that's good fare for middle school. Are you saying middle school and early high school? Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I think I was stuck still playing Risk at that point. I think. I think my first. I think I played diplomacy for the first time in. Eighth grade, I guess. Uh-huh. Eighth grade, and then well, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful game that I rarely get a chance to play. Um, yeah, uh, I got heavily into the play by email scene okay. uh, on CompuServe. Okay. Uh, you know, my parents had a CompuServe account, so I would I would play. So you'd be playing with that. people you don't know. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the best way to do it. I, I spent <laughs> a couple of years doing that as well. It would have been mid nineties. I don't even I don't even remember the technology, but it was something up here. Yeah. When I was in college, uh I had a number of door I had a couple did, of wait, did you say play by you played play by email? I or? played by email. Right. So okay. we played with a moderator who received all the all the emails. This was before the judges, the uh the sort of automated diplomacy resolving machines right. that, that 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 cropped up in the mid nineties. Right. Um and I had friends who played on those. So what kind of a diplomacy player were you? I was never a very good one. Uh, I, I did have I did have the privilege of playing once at a WorldCon, and pl- I played against the then world champion Pitt Crandallmeyer, mm-hmm. and he was he was he was really good. <laughs> I played at a couple of conventions. How was he really good? Like I mean, I played a, a, I played some, but I never played against what I would say like is like world class competition. So I've never seen what it means to be like a great diplomacy player. Uh, he was just very good at psychologically. He was very good at anticipating logically people's moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always seemed to guess right. On, on what you were going to do and when you were going to... He had a good sense for, for the cost-benefit analysis of betrayal in the game. So right. he, he, would, he would be able to reason backwards and see when it was optimal for you to betray him so that he would betray you one turn earlier. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. He also... And, and, of course, all the technical elements of the game, like the stalemate positions, he, of course, had right. fully yeah. memorized. Yeah. I mean, I actually enjoyed just that aspect of the game. The, like, the purely mechanical, like... Can you get your guys in the right position to bounce someone else? And, you know. Yes, yes, and I, I for that reason, I, I played a number of. I, I used to play a lot of diplomacy variants as well. You know, I played one called Dancing in the Dark, which was where uh, you only get knowledge of enemy units that your units can see, meaning oh, wow. and, and sight is defined by you can move there, okay. right? So uh, armies on the coast might not be able to see any fleets that are sitting next to them, right? right. Um, but the fleet can see the army. It's not. Uh, it's it's not. Uh, bi-directional. So I, I played that. That was fun. Uh, there was one variant called Bourse where you would, uh, you, you would, everybody had currency and you would bribe units in the currency of their nationality. Oh, wow. uh, so you had a limited supply for each different nation? or Well, but you could also sell units that you owned. So you would end up, so you had, yeah, you had the seven currencies for the seven countries and you would bid francs for this, this army and then and then you could uh, then auction off the army for if you ran low on francs because you wanted to stockpile francs later. It was, and the francs didn't go out of the game; they went to whoever 
you know, they, they, they either went to whoever or if nobody owned it because it was the start. Oh, no, I guess everybody started out with, with, with control of the, of the national units. Right, right, right. Um, so it was, uh, yeah. it, it was it was neat. And you could just trade currency among one another as well. Yeah. So there would be whispers, oh, Russia, Russia's collecting drachmas. You yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. He must be planning something against Turkey. Yeah, it's neat to see how much how much was built on top of diplomacy. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's fairly lightweight, which is one of the things that makes it great, you know. Um, so it makes sense you can put more stuff there. Yeah, the drawback, of course, is the long play time and the number of players you need. Oh, yeah. And everyone needs to be fully committed if you get a player who, you know, kind of really loses interest, which yeah. is a big problem, <laughs> which can happen. Like, you can Absolutely. drop down to two cities or capitals or whatever. And, uh, yeah, supply centers. Supply centers, that's, and then, the, that's the term. And then um, you're, uh, yeah, and then, and then you're like, well, screw this game. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a big problem we have. You know, potentially with off-world. Um, oh yeah. That, like um, once a player is in a in a weak position, you kind of want them eliminated as quickly as possible. Yeah. Because at that point, yeah, you know, they if they're going to use the black market, they're not necessarily doing it to win the game, right? right? They can just potentially be doing it to mess with other players and um, you know diplomacy. That's that was to me the one kind of unanswered problem with that game design um, is like, you know, what is the motivation for someone who's got you know two or three supply centers and you know, they can still make a difference, but it's just, you know, it's totally, you know. Yeah, you had to, you had to browbeat them into saying, look, if you, if you do exactly what I tell you and, and form this part of my stalemate line, then I'll leave you alive and you'll part, you'll be part of the tie. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was, that was a drawback. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not really a solvable problem if, whenever you have more than two people in the game. That's right. Uh, and, and, and if you have player elimination. Yeah. yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I tended to find that the games I won, it was almost always ended up in a scenario where I was sharing victory with one other big player. Right. Like solo victories in diplomacy among experienced players are very rare. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was you know tended to be like I was you know I was able to get my upper hand on my two neighbors, and then you know I didn't really have you know I didn't really have the stomach to try to like figure out a way to like you know pull the whole thing off. This is something that some of the descendants of diplomacy, I think, have actually improved on a lot. I think uh, the Game of Thrones board game, for example, okay. does a pretty good job. How do, how do they do it? Uh, well, so they have they have varying orders. I mean, it, 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 it too had definitely has catastrophic possibilities for people. But the fact that you have this sort of eternal uh, hand of cards that lets you uh, punch up the power of your units means that... You're not, you're always able if if you're not completely extinguished, you always have the ability if your if your conqueror gets distracted, to uh, to to push back when they uh, when they're uh, they're not you know when when they've got a bigger fish to fry. And you also have ways of bidding on power. It's been a while since I played, but you also have ways on, of bidding on powers like the throne power or the sword power that can give you a little edge. Sure. Um, and so I'm not saying the problem's eliminated, but I think I think that game does a really good job of. Uh, of keeping of keeping people engaged sure uh, yeah. with a, with a similar mechanic set to diplomacy you got your armies and fleets and you yeah. give them orders and, and then you simultaneously reveal everyone's orders and see hmm. how they interact I didn't realize it was that close of a pairing to or that, you should, that close of a descendant to diplomacy uh, when I played it I was very struck by right. how, how 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 much of a modern updating of diplomacy it seemed to be sure well diplomacy is an old game there's no reason why people shouldn't be starting to you know you know use that in other games as well yeah. Um, I mean, I love the, you know, I love the, the simplicity of diplomacy. So I'd be hesitant to like want to change that. But I mean, I do think that you could probably go a long way by changing, you know, you know just having a much lower threshold for victory. 
um, yeah. in the diplomacy type type game, um, just so that um, first of all it makes the game shorter, and you know even if someone only gets you know knocked down a couple supply centers, they you know is, is at least conceivable that some through some strange you know circumstance you know they could perhaps you know come back into the game. That's been a theme lately in, in some board games. I mean Dune is a classic Avalon Hill board game that among experienced players can go five six hours. But can also be very short if, if the right if the right stuff happens. Yeah. Um, and somebody published a version called Dune Express, which is super accelerated Dune, and that's proven, I think, popular right. um, among Dune fans. Right, people who like the original game nonetheless enjoy Dune Express because it lets them get that taste of of Dune without having to commit to a long game. Yeah, and the, you know, Risk Express uh, was was kind of trendy a while ago. The dice game. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed the the like just the core update to the the, the classic risk rules, um, not not risk legacy, but right. the um, uh, sort of just the the addition to objectives to the core game. Like I, I really had no interest in risk, you right? Know, <laughs> you know, right. after I was you know through <laughs> through high school or whatever. But they you know they really changed how the game felt when it was like okay, you just need to achieve three objectives to win the game. And there are things like, you know, uh, control all of Asia or, you know, capture two capitals in one turn or, you know, take over 10 countries in one turn or something yeah. like that. Um, because it, it um, since that's the only way, to, I mean, I guess you could still take over the world, but that's pretty hard to do. Um, it is because you're, you're, you're aiming for these offensive objectives, you're stretching yourself thin, right? You're going yep. to take these risks. All you're caring about is trying to get the objectives, which means you're not worried about fortifying your defenses. Um, so you're stretching yourself out. But then, so again, so so is everyone else, right? Right. So you get the sort of natural rhythm, and it's it's fun to attack, right? Yeah. Uh, and it shortens the game, and is just it was just uh, to me it was just a huge improvement. I love games with secret goals. Love them. Uh, I mean, even Ticket to Ride, which I generally don't like. Yeah. Um, well, these these I should say. I mean, secret goals are great. These goals are actually not secret. Right. The risk ones they're, aren't secret goals. For everyone sees them. But at least, uh, I, but but I, I'm remembering. There there were at least a few games ever since the '90s that that came out that had that had at least variable goals. Yeah. And you know where you can choose which one, which way you want to win and. Yeah. I really like that, and I wish I wish there were more of that in digital. I get I get I sometimes get the sense that that everyone's sublimated desire to be an esport where everything is totally symmetrical mm-hmm. is making people shy away from either public goals that are nonetheless variable and you don't need to hit all of them to win, or secret goals. Right. Um, yeah. No, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's great to have, have like the mix of like some public goals and some private goals. Like, I think that that leads to good, good gameplay. Um, I mean, I think the issue with with video games in general is they don't te- they, they don't lend themselves towards I don't know how to put chunky design. You know, right. where it's like here are three very concrete goals that you need to hit these specific numbers and or you know accomplish this very specific thing. You know, most most um, strategy games, at any rate, are not really about that. You know, they're you know, if, if it's an RTS, it's you know, what it is is it's kill all the other guys. Right. You know, blow up the enemy base. Yeah, yeah. There, there there may be one specific end goal. You know, like in Dota or whatever. Right. Um, and you know, in a game like Civ, is just a giant sprawling mass of stuff. Right. You know, it's not it's not in any way um, focused on you know. Oh, here's these few specific things that could end the game early. I mean the the victory conditions in Civ are 
sort of uh, aspirational, right? Right. They're right. not there to like make the game a better, like a better experience in terms of like. Right. They're player know. fantasy right. in some ways. Uh, yeah, I guess that's what you meant by aspirational. They. Right. Yes. Exactly. I, I envision myself as a peaceful person, so I'm gonna go for this cultural or diplomatic victory. Right. right. Whereas for me, like victory condition, one of the great things is in board games is ten a well designed board game. The victory condition is part of the game's pacing, right? Yeah. You know, it's like this we're gonna we're going to improve the game by you know giving these specific goals, which will keep the game from spiraling out of control. Um, and you know, I think a lot of a lot of video games don't just they just don't think in those terms. Um, right. Uh, I think it's hard to do. I mean. Uh, Sometimes you get a sort of interesting area where... I think that's true even if you confine yourself to strategy video games. I mean... Right. It's obviously true of all sorts of video games other than strategy ones, but... Yeah. Uh, I mean, video games have the advantage that they're, they're, there's so much more fuzziness going on, right? Like, you know, they, they don't have all these discrete states like you have in a board game. But, um, you know, you can, you can layer discrete stuff on top of otherwise chaotic stuff. Um, I mean, like, for example, look at the battlefield type games, right? Like yep. they have, um, you know, uh, team-based shooters, you know, well, I mean, shooters started multiplayer as deathmatch, which is just, you know, total chaos. Just, yeah, right? just kill the other team, and right. it goes, yeah. just rack up the numbers, yeah. And then things evolve to teams, right? And then, you know, like, well, let's layer on some very specific rules on top of that of, like, you know, typically it's what, like, there's say five control points and like right. control points or flag capture yeah, yeah you get and into the counter-strike and the right and if you have a majority of them stuff. then you know you see the tickets count you know for your side and then at some point you hit a certain threshold and you win and like i think there's a lot of value got added to the the games by putting something in like that yep um and uh it's another one of the great things about the uh, company of heroes series right? yes yes they, they layer something like that on top of an rts so um, it doesn't have the just the that general problem of like well you just got to kill everybody farm resources build and shoot yeah right right yeah yeah right you want to control certain parts of the battlefield you want to you want to control and they have different they have different values you know right. some some of them help you win some of them help you build stuff exactly yeah you got to make that make that choice of, yeah you know you going for the you know you want the victory point or you want the the thing that helps you yeah more it's definitely a mutator on sort of the stand right on the standard question in a lot of board games which is at what point do i switch over from improving my engine to having my engine generate win right, right. whatever win is you know yeah, yeah exactly cool all right well um so then you were um so you were starting to play a lot more board games once you got to middle school yeah middle school high school was a lot were of board you still, games were you still playing video games then oh definitely definitely yeah i played i played the old ultimas i played wing commander and all the sierra adventure games no one lives forever Mm-hmm. That that might have been more college. I don't remember when exactly when No Less Forever came out. Right. Um, of course, the Civ games and right. Sid Meier's uh, Sid Meier's Canon, and then um, that's a lot of sort of narrative based games, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, I played lots, something... lots and lots of different games. I played I played 1993 XCOM, sort mm-hmm. of my senior year in high school, sure, uh, which set me on that path. Right. Um, right. I played. Uh, uh, let's see, strategy wise. I'm definitely thinking of all this of Sid Meier's games, but I play I played Panzer General, sure. and the Perfect General, and Forbidden Kingdoms or Forgotten Kingdoms or whatever that you know the, the fantasy one that that company right. did was. Uh, well, and, it was a good time for strategy games in the mid '90s. Yes, there was a lot of experimentation. I wouldn't say those games were particularly well balanced or hold up, but 
you know, you know, sort of still hold up now, but like they were hitting all of this new space that was totally unexplored. I mean, yeah, it was a fascinating time. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, the ninety. I mean, the, the mid nineties were just a fantastic time for games in general, because because that was also the heyday of of Advent, I mean, Monkey Island. You know, you had you had a lot of very creative writing going on too. Later in the nineties, I guess you get Star Control Two, mm-hmm. which is one of my you know top top games of all time, um, and. Yeah, and then, and then on the consoles, you know, on the early consoles, and I, I was not a big console gamer. I, I had the original Nintendo, uh, which had the, you know, I played the classics on that one. Right. And, um, you know, Legend of Zelda. But, uh, and Legend of Zelda 2, a much maligned, I think, unfairly <laughs> entry in that series. And and then I and then I was on the on the Genesis, yeah. and I, I, didn't, I didn't really get... I didn't really get a lot further than that, I guess, until the PlayStation 1. Right. Were you trying to make any games during this period? No, I don't think so. Uh, I was Most of my creative energy was going into RPGs. I played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons in okay. high school. Right. A lot of Call of Cthulhu, uh-huh. Paranoia, a bunch of you know really quality paper, tabletop games. And right. I, I was always the DM, so I was making a lot of adventures for people. Sure. Uh, I won't say that they were very good, but... but it was a lot of fun. Sure. Um, and yeah, I was, I definitely was not creating, creating us, uh, certainly not digital games uh, right. at the time. What did you think you wanted to do back then? Well, I thought I had a lot, I, you know, there were times when I wanted to be an oceanographer. <laughs> sure. uh, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a, uh, I, I, I had thought about going to law. As okay. well, yeah. uh, you know, ambitions of the Supreme Court and so forth. And then when I got into school, I picked up, uh, when I got into college, I picked up economics. And I thought that, I mean, economics was a, a world changer for me in terms of a sort of analytical lens. Right. I had some very good professors and, and I really got engaged with that. And so I decided I wanted to work on public policy. And so I, that's actually what I did for the first couple of years out of college. And right. it was it was while I was working in public policy in, in, like, in DC. Is that how you yeah. ended up in the area? Yeah, in Washington DC. That's okay. right. Uh, while I was working in public policy in DC, I found a board game group mm-hmm. at the George Washington University. Uh, they had a board game group, and, and they met every weekend. And so I showed up, and I met a number of people, including Jason Matthews, who okay. was also working in DC mm-hmm. at the time as uh as a as a legislative i guess at the time he was legislative aide although he was soon to become legislative director Mm. jason is why i'm a secondary linkedin connection of president obama Um, (laughs) and um because he's a first degree (laughs) and uh and so jason and i and so you have to remember at at this time there was a revolution going on in tabletop wargaming which was the card-driven revolution this was Mm -hmm. Started by Mark Herman mm-hmm. with uh, We the People, the right. game about the American Revolution, and then uh, by Mark Simonich with uh, Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, uh-huh. and then after that, and those games, those games were very well received. Yeah, but it really took off, in my opinion, at least in 1999 with Ted Racer and Paths of Glory, mm-hmm. because Ted showed first of all he he made a number of key innovations to the genre to the mechanics. He also showed that World War One could be gamed, like he could, that the system could be used to make a game about World War One, right. which was seen previously seen as ungameable. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how did he fix it? Uh, he, well, he didn't. He didn't. 
he, so he was the first one to come out with a game that had uh, individual decks. Uh, so the allies okay. and the central powers use their own decks. Uh-huh. So that bounced out card luck quite a lot. And then he also he also so Rome Rome versus Carthage had taken the clever step of making it so that operations points and events were on both uh, were on every card. Same card, right? Uh, were always on. You know, every card had both. And what Ted was able to do... Did they have the same thing Twilight Struggle has, where you, you make a choice, you get the event or the operation? That's right. Okay. That's right. That uh, that was true That was true in, in Rome versus Carthage and Paths of Glory. Okay. And For the People, which was another Civil War game that uh, Mark Herman did. Mm-hmm. Or, which was a Civil War game that Mark Herman did. And the and For the People was also a huge, a huge game changer for historical gaming because it was the most playable grand strategy civil war game that had, that had it ever come out right okay. all the grand strategy civil war games prior to that had been unplayable monsters hmm. um and so i haven't heard of for i've heard of we the people plenty but i haven't heard of for the people all that much uh for the people it's really good yeah. it's a really good game um and uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's and it's you know it's it's playable Civil War in just a few hours. Uh, start you know eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. Okay. I mean it's it comes in for its share of criticism. You know there's a lot of weird stuff that can happen in it that is not particularly historical, but the historical path is certainly possible. And what Mark was going for in that, according to his designers' notes and others, is that you know he was going for the general sort of strategic dilemmas that both sides faced. You know there are certain axes of advance that the Union can take, and which ones are you emphasizing, which ones are you investing in. The, the problem of political management was very well handled. You know, the, why doesn't the Union fire all its terrible generals and replace them with good <laughs> ones? Well, the answer is they, they couldn't. Those yeah, were yeah. all very influential individuals. Um, and then the importance of, like, river control and sea control yeah. and just strangling the Confederacy. And so, and so, you know, it captured these very powerful resonant themes uh, in terms of how the Civil War was fought and how it was thought about by the participants. And I think for that reason, it really caught on. It really stuck well. And so... And so I, I had the I had the privilege of playing Paths of Glory in 1999 when it was still in playtest form, mm-hmm. and I told Ted uh, this was at Avalon Con. It was actually at the last Avalon Con before Avalon Hill died, mm-hmm. yeah. and 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 then, and then that convention became the World Board Gaming Championships. I played with Ted, and I told him that he had absolutely captured the mentality of World War One generalship. Right. Right. I, I really viscerally felt playing as uh, as the Allies, uh, you know, at one moment on the Western Front, I was like, if I push one more time, by <laughs> God, they will break. Yeah. Right. We're almost there. We are oh, almost there. I, one I, more time over the top. That's right. That, <laughs> that was exactly how I felt. And I just kept throwing. And, and yeah. then afterwards, I was like, what have I done? You know, <laughs> and, 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 and Ted, Ted beamed and said, well, you know, then mission accomplished. Right. Yeah. And, and it was it was it was it was just a remarkable game. Well, that's to cool. Play. I mean, that's the best thing I think these games can do, like in the sense that they're too short to ever have any argument to say that they're you know a simulation of what happened but you can create an emotional reality you know for the player yes. that you know matches to at least you know a conception of what it was like yeah i mean for the people ran into controversy about that right for the people in for the people there is no built-in fort on washington dc and mm. people ask mark herman why why is this the case mm. you know when historically washington dc was probably the most fortified city on the planet in, in 1862 right. and his reply was i want the union player to be paranoid about washington dc right that was the sure number one strategic concern and yeah. everything else was a distant second yep, yep. you know and <coughs> and so to do that he he gave, he gave the player really strong mechanical incentives to just pile troops in there and right. invest a huge amount in fortifications right 
hmm. and so forth. And, That's interesting. And, uh, and this was just a case where he said, yeah, I, I, I get that it's a historical, but to design the game historically would have led to a historical behavior by the players. And and that's that uh, that's the lesser evil is hmm. is to have in a historical game where the players behave historically, right, right, and and so in this environment where where Paths of Glory, you know, Paths of Glory was was clearly on the verge of of being a great success, although there was nearly a crisis, right? Because then Hasbro went out of or Avalon Hill went out of business, uh-huh. and. Th- Ted had already sold the rights to Paths of Glory uh-huh. to Avalon Hill. And yeah. so now their rights were caught in, 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 in limbo, in corporate yeah. limbo. And luckily, uh, th- Ted was able to get the rights out of Hasbro yeah. with some, with some uh, you know, w- w- on a, in a timely manner, yeah. and, and published the game through GMT, which, which did uh, very well with that. And, and so it was in this environment where Jason and I felt finally... You know, we felt like we could design a game that would use this paradigm that yep. had been developed by Mark and Ted and, and, and Mark, you know, both Marks. And we, we, could, we, could, we could design a game, you know, finally somebody had come up with a, with a sort of general approach that handled the things that we would need to handle right. in a game that we wanted to work on. And this paradigm that they had come up with solved so many problems with wargaming, right? It solved downtime problems, yeah. right? You and I alternate playing cards now. Instead of you moving all your units yep. while I kind of snooze for 15 minutes and then I wake up and move my units. Yeah. You know, it's so much easier to remain engaged and focused in, the, in these card-driven games. Yeah. Well, in the old, old war games, I mean, it's just, it's just the literal approach to how you would do it, right? Right. Like, there's a battle. we got to get all the guys in the battle on the map and let's move all the guys around. Yeah, except even that's not great because, of course, it's I go, you go, which is not oh, how yeah, it's totally battles work. Right. I it's, mean, there's no, and there's no way to solve that who's, whose turn is a problem, you know? Like, right, but the, 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 the cleverness the cleverness of Mark and, Mar- and Ted was that they understood that the literal approach was not getting mm-hmm. the war game designers what... And you know what they wanted, what anyway. they wanted anyway. Yeah, yeah. So why why not back off of this and and instead introduce interesting gameplay and interesting mechanics? And the cards, the cards also had the huge benefit of baking a bunch of rules onto yeah. this thing that the players are studying yeah. as part of the, the game. Into the game. Yes, yeah. that's right. And so I was, and so we you know we felt like we were we, Jason and I felt like we were we were sort of caught up in this and you know there's this great moment was here right and so we were able to so so we wanted to pick a topic we want we decided we wanted to do a game because we were we were also afraid we were afraid that games were moving in the wrong direction with this new mm-hmm. system right every game since we the people have become more complex let's back up for one second oh sure um because there is sort of a big conceptual leap missing here which is that there's lots of people who you know enjoy board games and they're really into it and have opinions but um you know, especially back then, you know, it, it is still a big jump to say, you know what, I can do it, I can do it better myself, and I'm going to try to do that, right? Like, how did how did that happen? Oh, um, so that's that's interesting. Uh, it's 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 mostly because Jason and I felt that that the, the, that the designers using this system were going to be moving in the wrong direction, okay. towards greater complexity and greater playtime. That's the that's the natural way things go normally. And we felt we felt that this was wrong. Like we yeah. felt we felt that we wanted to do something much closer in playtime and rule scope to Mark's original We the People. Uh-huh. And so we 
once we'd resolved on doing a game like that, we hadn't even settled on a topic yet. Right. We but we we felt no, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put down a stake, uh-huh. and we're gonna we're gonna show that that the game you know the right the right kind of way the right way to use the system, right. <laughs> the right way to use these mechanics is is to make a game that is more like what Mark originally did. Sure. Even though Paths of Glory is a fantastic game. Sure. Right. It was clear that people were seeing it as, oh, Paths of Glory is more complex, right. and it's really awesome. So let's make some. If I make a game that's more complex than Paths of Glory, it will be even that much more awesome. Yeah. So well, that's that's the, you know, that's the game development cycle until yeah. until the game sort of collapses under their own weight, and you have to kind of start over again. That's right. That's right. And and this was happening, but we, by God, we were going to we were going to stand athwart, yelling right. stop. Right. Right. <laughs> and so, and so. We then decided to do the Spanish Civil War as a topic because uh-huh. that's a really interesting, nuanced conflict, and we we started doing some research, and then we found out that a guy in Spain was doing one, mm-hmm. and we thought, well, his is going to be better. Mm-hmm. So what else? Or it'll be more Spanish, in any rate. It, yeah, it'll be something. But <laughs> we we were pretty convinced that his would be better. Yeah. So so we decided, well, let's let's do something else. And I, I suggested I, I I was I think we were sitting in uh, Jason and his wife uh, at the time Vonda's apartment. And I looked at his bookshelf and I said, "Wow, you really love American foreign policy after the after World War II, don't you?" And yeah. he said, "Oh yeah, yeah." And I said, "Should we do the Cold War?" Right. <laughs> and he he looked at me and said, "The Cold War." And I said, "Yeah, no, there are no games about it. There's only yeah. or there's only one game, right? There's a four player, very weird game called the Cold War by Victory Games, which four you know, player. Yeah, it was very artificial. You know, there was who were the other two players? Africa and Europe." And they were all equals. Like it was very, it was very abstract. It was very abstract. It wasn't a okay. historical game as much. Yeah, it's funny because that's like the best thing about the Cold War. It's like awesome. There's only two, you know, there's only two players. Right. Like we don't right. have to make excuses for like, you know, if you want to do like any almost any European conflict, you're like, well, can we somehow make this about two players? Well, we can't really. No, not you really. Know, unfortunately, just, the Cold War is like awesome. There can yeah. only be two players. Which is ironic because my current board game project is a two-player game about the 18th century. <laughs> okay. So I, I, we did figure out a way to uh, to strong arm all the other players out, except Britain and France. But, right. um, but uh, uh, the so so we 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 looked at the we kind of did the literature review and we saw mm-hmm. that almost all the Cold War era games were were sort of operational games. They were what if games about a, yeah. a NATO Soviet conflict. They invaded West Germany or whatever. That's right. That's right. And so we thought, well, this is actually a much more virgin field than we had imagined, uh-huh. and we got started on it and. Uh, we, I, I, I looked on my hard drive, and I think the earliest version of the rules that I have there is from 2001, mm-hmm. and we finished it in 2003. I would say like fall 2003, uh, but it wasn't published until 2005. Okay. Um, well, there's a lot to, a lot to jump into there. Um, was it? Uh, so, what was the development process like? Like, what did it, did it start out significantly different than? It became, or yeah, mostly it was Jason and I getting together in one of our apartments, mm-hmm. and you know we, we we established core values. You know we definitely established core values, which is something that that I think games ought you know game designers ought to do. Right. You know what what is this game? You know, leaving aside things like play play time and complexity, there were also just you know what do we think is important about the Cold War? What are going to be the main mechanics here? And, you know, we quickly we quickly settled on the idea that we're going to be authentic to the Cold War mentality as it existed during the Cold War, not hindsight. Right. So, for example, the domino theory, which is not particularly well regarded in academic circles these days, 
is is absolute reality in the mechanics. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, similarly, you know, the space race matters a lot, right? Like the space race, getting 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 ahead and using the space race uh, matters a lot up to a point, and then and then its importance falls off a little. But but we wanted people to feel we we wanted people to feel urgency about the right. space race. Um, you know, we we came up with. We came up with ideas. So, so one of the very early ideas, we we were sort of riffing on games that we wanted, that we thought were cool, that wanted, that we wanted to sort of emulate or, or learn from. And History of the World was one of them. I love, Be- I love History of the World. Oh yeah, it's yeah, a it's fantastic great. game. And I, I know Brief History of the World came out a couple of years ago, and that's yeah. uh, that's a, that's a neat game too. Have you? There's an iPad version of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I play. I mean, it's and it's a great. It's, it's like built to be an asynchronous game, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hope I haven't played in a while, and I, the early version had some kinks. Yeah. Had some bugs, and I, I hope it's because I, I love playing it, and I, I, I love playing it. Long. At least some of them are fixed, I know. Yeah. Um, but in any case, with 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 history of the world, mm-hmm. one of the things we really liked about history of the world was how the different parts of the world change value as sure. the course as the game goes on, and that makes a ton of sense for history of the world. Yeah. And we, what we wanted was something very similar, and so we started out with this this scoring system where, where you know, a little bit, a lot like History of the World, where basically we, we decided how important each region was, but it was not quite clicking. Mm-hmm. And then we decided, what about putting the scoring into the deck, sure. so that each each region has a scoring card, and they're drawn just like other cards, and that gives asymmetric information too. That yeah. gives that gives one player knowledge about when it's gonna. When this region is going to score, but it also takes up a card slot in his hand, which he probably would rather not it not do. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a two-edged sword. You know, you have crucial knowledge that the other person doesn't, but you also have less capability to do anything about it. Um, and that I think once we hit on that idea, that drove that drove a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. That drove a lot of stuff. The idea that, you know, it was after that then that we came up with the idea that if I play a card that has your event on it, then it right. triggers. Uh, that was a very new idea that a number of games since have, have adapted. Did the previous games just have it so that you just, you just get, you still get the operational points essentially? Um, that's right. So in, 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 well, in, uh, in We the People, an event, an event that is for your opponent is basically just a dead card to you. You can't even use it? Right. Because oh, okay. it doesn't have operations either. Operations are separate cards. Oh, right. In, then, oh, in, Path of Glory, was Path of Glory the one? Path of Glory has separate decks, so there's no oh, way right. you, you can't possibly draw. Get the other person's card anyway. Right. So. Right. And, and that was something else. Uh, as much as we, you know, we love Paths of Glory, but we wanted to go back to a shared deck. Uh-huh. Yeah, because to us that felt a little bit more like playing the game with your opponent. It, sure, it felt a little bit more like you're kind of playing a game together. And well, with with separate decks, you're going to get all the events eventually. Yes, right? that's and right. Like this, it really changes. It really has a lot more variety for sure. Yeah, um, that's right. So, yeah, the hand management issues, the hand the hand management problems in Paths of Glory are very different than the ones in Twilight Struggle. Or in any of the shared deck games, right? You know, in in, in Paths of Glory, you were actively looking to get the bad cards out of your deck, the low value cards out of your deck, and you you manufacture opportunities to play them, right? And that's interesting. That's a kind of a cool, interesting point of view where uh, that leads to a lot of interesting decisions. But that was not what we were going for, right? So it's interesting what you said about um, 
you know, you were going to like adopt the fact that like you assume that the domino theory is true and that the space race is actually important. Um, and, you know, kind of like echoes what you said about what the, uh, the anecdote about DC, um, you know, with, with, uh, for the people, right? Like it's, it's yes. not necessarily like true, but you're trying to, to, to match what people thought. That's right. That's right. You're, we're trying to recreate the mentality and you can't just put a rule in the player in the rule book that says, Hey players think, think like those guys did back yeah. then, you know, you have to. Yeah. And it's a really weird thing. That's a, it's a very high, you know, so I haven't heard people talk about it that way because so many people, you think about games in terms of like it's supposed to not necessarily model reality, but like you 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 wanted to have a sense that you're recreating an actual situation as opposed to recreating a mindset, right? Like right. I think of I think of Labyrinth is another interesting example here. Oh yes, in that. Um, so and, and since this is that's more about contemporary events um, where people kind of have much more charged opinions of it, I think that's kind of an interesting one. I, I would love to talk yes. to um, to Volko Volko because. Like, does he believe? Is he does he believe in the neocon theory, or because it seems like that game essentially like the the, the game mechanics essentially push you down the sense that like whatever you know the Bush team thought was true, right? Like you know you you put your influence here, it's going to spread out from there. And oh yeah, certainly certainly that game absolutely hard codes the idea that that uh, sort of active U.S. effort can improve governance in yeah. Middle Eastern countries and, and improve security. But here's the thing. I could totally see a situation where if I was designing a game like that, I don't necessarily believe, you know, the neocon theory. Right. right? But it's a good game mechanic. Yes, right? absolutely. And like, so, you know, often in times, and it doesn't matter if you're making a game about, you know, dragons or sci-fi or whatever, because, right. like, you know, who's, who cares what, what, what larger point it's making? But, you know... Game mechanics often push you down a certain path, where you you get that to the end of that path, and you're like, wow, what what is the point? You know, what what is what is the point that my game is now saying? And like, I might actually disagree with that point. Right. Right. Like, I made this game that says something that I don't actually believe, even though like that's kind of like the natural path that the game mechanics led me towards. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I think labyrinth. So. Yeah, Labyrinth has been roundly criticized for the assumptions in it, and to which right. Volko... So Volko, uh, there was a Guardian interview, or some interview somewhere with Volko, right. where I think it was, it was he and Brenda Romero were both interviewed for okay. this, and and the author doesn't go into detail about the extent to which Volko sort of defends the assumptions that are baked into Labyrinth. Okay. But... Does he? I mean, does it does it represent his beliefs? Or I, I don't know. He's, he's so. so I, I don't know how to, to what extent it represents his beliefs. I know. I mean, so Volko works for the CIA. <laughs> really? So, <laughs> so, but he's. I mean, but he. Oh, that's awesome. But okay. as far as I know, he's. I mean, the CIA is nonpartisan, right? There. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, sure they, there's plenty of yeah. Go ahead. So, so I, I don't know to what extent he personally buys into that, uh, into the, the 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 ideas that the mechanics of Labyrinth validate. But you're right that the mechanics of Labyrinth do a great job at encouraging the U.S. to intervene a lot in places. <laughs> and and, 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 of, and of, of, of holding up the carrot. But, I mean, but they have to, right? The, if, if, if the U.S. player in Labyrinth knew that his efforts would almost certainly be futile... <laughs> Right. He wouldn't do it. He, sure, he, wouldn't, he yeah. wouldn't perform these actions. Yeah, it wouldn't make for um, a fun game at all. You know? Right. Similarly, in Labyrinth on the other side, the jihadist player can 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 put together quite a, you know, the, the jihadist player can do all sorts of things that arguably Al Qaeda of the two thousands is just not capable of doing. Sure. 
but that has to be dangled for the player so that they can right. so that they can play the game. You mentioned an interview. What was uh, the in the Guardian? Yeah, yeah. So what was right, finish the? What was the? Uh, what was he saying? Oh, that that interview was about that interview was I, I believe it was about more or less games games that are making a point games right. that are making you know they're making a message and uh, and and also about the strength of board games in right. this respect because players have to internalize the rules in the game systems that it can't be enforced upon them by the computer sure right players players are the ones who all, everything in a board game has to be transparent and so there's no yeah there's no hiding right there, there's no hiding your agenda <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah well it's interesting because I've always thought of that as kind of a weird thing about labyrinth in that um, like you know it, it kind of the the neocon theory makes for a very natural game like if it's if it's gameplay very well yeah it'd be a lot harder to make a game about sort of the opposing theory um but uh so it's hard, it's hard to say what his opinion would be but like i think you've actually given the best defense i could think of for making a game like that anyway which is that we're making a game that lets you feel what it's like to be a neocon yes right like assuming like there are people, and like the, the neocons, that's what they generally believe about the world. Well, we're going to give you a game, and you're going to like feel what it's like to view the world that way. Like, you shouldn't, you should understand that, like, when you're done with the game, you should not change your worldview, right? Like, it is perhaps like a tool of, uh, I don't know, perhaps empathy. I'm not sure. I think so. I, I think, I think in some ways, it is just, it, it, is, it is like reading a book mm-hmm. written by someone who espouses the opposing point of view, but much more visceral because right. you are. You are now being, you're being walked through. Yeah. You're walking yourself through. Yeah. The decision process that they that they see the world presenting to them. Yeah. Inter- incidentally, GMT when they when they listed Labyrinth, mm-hmm. they were met with a huge amount of uh, of concern from their sure. player base, not because of the neocon side, but because of the jihadist side. Yeah. Right. The idea of allowing sure. people of publishing a game that would allow people. Uh, to walk, you know, to, to, to go through exactly the same process we were just discussing, but from the jihadist point of view, yeah. was was very nervous making. Yeah. And so it was for this reason that GMT asked Volko, would it be possible to include with the game uh, solitaire rules that would run the run the, uh, the the jihadist side as a bot? Right. And uh, he initially thought that that would be too much work, but upon some reflection and analysis, he found out that indeed it could be done. And so. Uh, Labyrinth is marketed as a game for one to two players, where <laughs> wow, it's interesting. Uh, there is no U.S. bot, although yeah. I believe a fan has modded has, sure. has created a U.S. bot. Right. But in the box, there is no U.S. bot. But uh, and and so GMT then published the game, hmm. and I believe that satisfied their customers who who right. were who, who wanted to play the game but didn't feel like they could find playing partners willing to play as the jihadists. Yeah, um, and it's a funny thing, right? Hobby wargaming is still small enough that like a game like labyrinth could never really cause like a scandal or something right as opposed to like ea deciding to make a game you know where you're strategically playing the jihadists right although they did actually didn't they well sort of like candy conquer generals it's not about a real that was pre-9-11 but yes that's true that's true it was pre-9-11 but i think it was pre-9-11 yeah it must have it must have been because because yeah i think it's still basically true post 9-11 there's no way ea would make a game like that i mean even in counter-strike it's always the other team that looks like the terrorists yeah sure um Uh and yes uh i i think that i i think that well, so so Volko 
developed the labyrinth system into uh, into a into the coin system, which is now the now the big trend in mm-hmm. in, in board gaming is the coin system, which is which has allowed the gaming of lots of conflicts that are sure. very traditionally under games, such as so the first one is Andean Abyss. Yeah. And that one has players, and that one has bots for all the factions. So if you don't, if your players don't want to play as the drug cartels, then they, you can play you can play uh, Cali Cartel bot. <laughs> right, right. But the third one is is a distant plane, which is Afghanistan oh, wow. from two thousand three to the present. Okay. And that one has four players: the coalition, the Afghan government, the warlords, and the Taliban. Right. And there have been a couple of articles in mainstream press about uh, mainstream reaction. You know, when playing. And uh, there was one anecdote that was told where uh, a U.S. military veteran, this was a group of, of mostly veterans and, 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 and sort of intelligence employees were playing, and a military veteran was playing as the Taliban, and he was moving the pieces around. He's like, okay, I'm going to nail these guys. Mm. Right, I'm going to nail these, these coalition troops. And then he paused for a moment, and he stood up, and he's like, I just, you know... <laughs> What, what am I doing? Right. right. And he had to step away from the table for a little while yeah, to, yeah. to sort of recollect himself because he, the game had so completely taken him, you know, he had, he had he, the game had so completely taken him out of his, his default, his default mentality and, and, and the mechanics and the events and the, and the presentation of the game had done such a good job of presenting him with the problem of uh, you're the Taliban and here's the problem that you were yeah. solving yeah. and here's the goal you're trying to achieve that he had momentarily forgotten who he was. And I yeah. think that is a, a huge, that, that speaks volumes as to what games like like that can achieve. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, and it's it's funny. Like I, I don't really pay, you know, I don't really spend much time thinking about the whole like games. You know, are violent games dangerous? Issue that like is right, constantly yeah. bubbling up. It's just yeah, it's not very interesting to me. I understand why people are upset about it, whatever. But be, and the other the other aspect is, I think that even if they are dangerous to, to some extent, which you know, I think is debatable, I think that's dwarfed by like the actual danger of games, which is, you know, this, that like, you're, you're putting yourself in like, you're, you're, what's basically, you're being essentially trapped into someone else's mind, you know, when you play a game. That's like, right. Their, their mindset of how, how they believe the world works. Like you're, you're going to be swimming in that. Right. And like um, if, you know, I don't I don't think we're quite there where there are a lot of games that are really trying to do that about contemporary issues. Um, but like, you know, it's it's a, it's very powerful you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There have been games. I mean, I remember that one game that came out a couple, you know, a year or so after 9-11, the one where all you can do is fire missiles at this Middle Eastern town. Yeah. September 12th. Yeah. September 12th. That's the one. And and I mean that is very clearly an editorial game, right? And you know there's only one player action available, which is itself a statement. I mean, every all those things, all those things are baked into how you make the game and what 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 the systems are. And I think that's in some ways that's what draws me to making games. Honestly, is right. the the ability to the ability to create that emotional state and to create that mindset for a player to step into. Yeah. Well, I think it's... I think Papers, it's, Please, more recently, oh, yeah, is an sure. extremely good example for of this. Sure. I mean, I think it's super powerful, but at the same time, I'm worried because I don't think people are yet prepared for, like, how powerful that can be. Like, That's they, right. They don't, they don't think about that, you know, a, a game could affect them in, in ways way beyond what a book or a movie could. 
you know. Um, and uh, because, you know, 90% of the games are not trying to do anything like that, and they're about topics that are just totally, you know, not relevant to someone's actual life, right? Right. Um, so, no, then you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah, these are it's interesting stuff to think about. Um, but we should just jump back to the design of uh, Twilight Struggle a little bit. Sure. Um, so one thing that jumps out to me about the game is um, the role of luck in it. Mm -hmm. um, are you concept? Are you familiar with the concept of sort of pre-action versus post-action luck? No. Okay. So this is a this is sort of an idea that's been espoused by some people last few years about um, you know there's kind of like different you know luck can play two very different roles in the game. Pre-action luck is where is drawing a hand of cards. Or, uh, well, that's that's probably like the classic example. Like, there's some sort of random event, mm -hmm. and then you get some options, and you choose those options. Yep. Post-action luck is you make a decision, and then there's some randomness that occurs, and that determines right. the outcome. So that is deciding to attack someone at risk, and then you roll the die. Right, and then succeed or fail based on right. that. So in Twilight Struggle, the pre-action luck is you draw your hand cards. Yep. Right. Post-action luck is I'm going to do a coup. I'm going to do a, a you know realignment, mm -hmm. um, and both of those. And for the most part, when people talk about these issues, you know, I don't want to oversimplify, but basically, what they're usually trying to say is pre-action luck is good, post-action luck is bad. Mm. Right. Like that's. I mean, I you know, there should. I think there's always going to be room for post-action luck in games. Period. Sure. But but the argument is is that. Um, it's more interesting to, you know, ha what, what's the best way that, pro what's the best place for probability, role for probability of playing a game? Well, it should, um, you know, make sure that the game changes each time you play it, but you're able to adapt to those changes, as opposed right. to make a decision and then just something completely out of your hands determines, you know, what, 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 what happens. Um, and um, so both the, the, the coups and the realignments uh, rules, the rules for those both really stuck out to me as um, kind of these uh, things where it's you know potentially super swingy, right? Like mm -hmm. you know the way the way the rules go can you know make a huge difference in, in how the game plays out. They can, um, and um, you know that's sort of uh, just a gameplay aesthetic, right? Like it's 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 fine to say like I want to make a game that is super swingy, right? But like is that, is that your attention? Like, what was your, what was your thinking about like designing those aspects of the game? Mostly, we thought of coups and realignments as analogous to combat, okay. and so and, and because because most games at the time uh, rely on dice to resolve combat, that's probably why we did it. You know, I, I couldn't point to exactly the the, the rationale uh, as to why we have die rolls for coups. I, I think, I think that. You know, one, one, one of the one, one of the standard replies, you know, one of the standard uh, observations that both Jason and I make when confronted with the idea that Twilight Struggle has too much luck in it, mm -hmm. uh, they people don't usually draw the distinction you just did, is is that if it does, it's awfully weird that the same six guys show up in the uh, in the quarterfinals at, at WBC every year. Sure, and so and so it feel it feels it feels a lot like at least with coups and realignments the. Con, you know the consequence of any individual role up against the whole game is usually pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, there are exceptions, of course, but 
ultimately, I think part, I, I, honestly, I, th- I think I think it was largely inertia. It was it was simply that this is our version of combat. Combat uses dice. People people in the audience that we're going for are comfortable with. Sure. The whole game just came down to a three to one attack on Tobruk. Right. So let's uh, let's let, let's 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 roll a die and see what happens. Uh, that's an exaggerated example, of course, but. Um, would, but, you, would you do it the same way if you were to do it again? Um, that's a good question. I'm. I think I, I think I probably would. I don't think. Maybe maybe I would narrow the span of outcomes mm-hmm. a little bit so that it's, it's so so that it's not. You know the the success or failure overall is still is still on on the die, but. You know, you can't. You know, you, you can't get a one-six result that that results in just you know the attacker getting this enormous amount of extra influence in the country. Mm-hmm. M- maybe, maybe I would change that. Um, uh, it it felt to me, it, it you know, to play twice royal feels to me a little you know, especially with the DefCon system and the restrictions on when and where you can, you can do, do coups. Right. Yep. To me, that feels a little bit like bridge, where you are giving yourself the best chance. You know, you're saying, "Okay, look, it's DefCon Five, which means there's only going to be one coup in Europe, and I'm going to take it. That's going to give me my best chance. It's going to deny any such opportunity to the opponent, unless he's got cards that that will change that." And you know, I like I like that about you know I, I like that about bridge, uh, which is one of my favorite games, where. You're looking at a certain card situation, and you're saying, "Well, do I go for a finesse or do I go for a drop?" That's those, that's one of the most basic plays in bridge, and and it's it's you know it's 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 luck as to which one works, um, and, and so you you know you can you can kind of load the die you can kind of load the load the, the the cards in your favor a little by having you know maybe maybe certain bids or maybe certain uh, earlier card plays might influence your view as to who holds the, the card you're going after, but ultimately. Ultimately, it's a bit of a luck, a luck play. You just put, you just try to give yourself the best chance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and, and and that's that's kind of how I take. I, I that's kind of how I think about it. I think that I think that 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 distinction between post and pre-action luck is a useful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, intuitively, it strikes me as a useful one. I because I think the like the role of like, drawing the cards in the game, I think is perfect. Like I right. think that's absolutely. Fine, and I, I don't wouldn't nec- I wouldn't necessarily change the dice roll either, but I probably would spend a little more time thinking about it. Yeah, like I, some sort of consolation prize type thing, or like yeah. You know, um, and games since games since have 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 done that. Games yeah. since you know, for example, in, in or like with, uh, with with realignment, if you you know each time you do it, maybe you give yourself plus one, plus one, plus one. That's right. Well, Labyrinth does that. Labyrinth every time you miss a War of Ideas roll by by margin of one, you get an aid, which gives you a bonus on the next one. Uh, I, th- I think there's I think there's something there. Um, I know people have played Twilight Struggle with luck decks, mm, where sure. where you know you just control the number of results that are yep. possible, and so, yeah, so they use outcome cards instead. Uh, ultimately, I mean that's gameable, of course, because if they're public, then you know sure. you, you know that your opponent cannot possibly fail at his next coup roll, so you try to that may alter the line of play that you take. Um, on my current project. I have definitely reduced the influence of what you're calling post-action luck mm-hmm. um, uh, pretty substantially. So maybe intuitively, I, I too, got there, too. Got, yeah. got there a little bit. Um, I think I think the hard part is like you, know, you go for a coup, you know, and you roll a one, and you feel like like your turn 
was just wasted. Wasted, yeah. yeah I, mean, I think that's wasted. that's the hard part emotionally. Like, I think, like, abstractly, I'm fine with that. I'm like, well, you knew what the odds were, and you made a decision, and blah, 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 and, like... Right, but emotionally, it's not a great feeling. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think one of the problems with... You know, if you're gonna if you if you want to get rid of if you want to get rid of a reduced post action luck, one of the problems that you face is how do you get uh, how do you get out of the co problem, which is uh, you know in Go there is a rule where you you have to avoid you, you can't reproduce the board, yeah. right? So okay. so a, a very low luck approach or a no luck approach to coups and twilight struggle would actually have fairly large ripple effects because okay I coup Italy and I you know based on my cards I know that I'm going to succeed and then you you coup Italy and, and then it just comes down to who drew you know do, do we go back and forth right, just switching sure. control of Italy until it becomes clear that I have better cards <coughs> than you and therefore I'm going to end up with control of Italy to me um, you need you need additional mechanics then to support that so that you don't you don't have that situation uh, and in Twilight Struggle that mechanic is partly the Defcon mechanic mm-hmm. Uh, and partly the sort of winner over control mechanic, where if I win by a large margin, that actually makes it much even even less tempting right. for you to go to come back after it. Um, and in in my current project, Imperial Struggle, the way I'm dealing with that is is that the types of actions available are random. So. There are three types of action: economic, di- diplomatic, and military. And mm-hmm. and eight cards are dealt out in, uh, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the turn. And players buy those cards okay. in turn. So the cards you have in your hand only have numbers, right? And then you say, okay, well, I see that there's a there are only two economic actions on the board, and one of them costs four, and one of them costs one. And I, you know, I so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna scarf that one, the the one mm-hmm. cost one. And I take that economic action and. I know that at most you can take one economic action because there's only one left. And if you don't take it, I'll get two and you'll get zero. Right. And that is how that is how an Imperial struggle, because there's no DEFCON in Imperial struggle, we are dealing with the possibility of just going back and forth doing the same thing. Sure. Interesting. Um, hmm. um, so another thing that jumps out at me about Twilight Struggle, and you'll have to it'll tell me if any of you, the previous uh, car-based uh, war games did this, was... You know, having you know both players having influence markers in the same location. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, was that new for Twilight Struggle essentially? Um, because the other ones were more war games, right? So I assume they were more like yeah, have the city. Yeah, you have the city. Both both Hannibal and and We the People had only solo control. Right. Um. Yeah. Having having both sides have influence in the same country just seemed to me to be a very Cold War friendly mm-hmm. yeah. mechanic. Yeah. Uh, it, um, and it turned it into sort of an area of con- area control game. Yes. Right? Um, and like, uh, and you know, there were area control games before that, but it's kind of like one of this, these funny things of like, it takes a while sometimes for like the perfect theme to find the perfect mechanic for it. Right. I do feel like that's an example of something that worked really, really great with the Cold War. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we definitely wanted players to feel like, oh, you know, that my opponent is there, and so I want to be there, and and, and that's how we felt the Cold War mentality worked. Um, but yeah, I don't think. Uh, I, I mean, you're right. Other other games in other games in the genre have had both types of units. You know, have have allowed have allowed enemies to share spaces, depending on the game, right? So right. labyrinth, you can obviously have. Right. Troops and, and jihadist cells in the same countries, and the ways they interact are clever. Yep. Uh, 
and you know in all the coin games obviously lots of units share spaces all the time sure and, yeah i mean it's but, yeah I mean, it's, it's, but yeah it's, 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 glory not so much <laughs> yeah, yeah sort of it was, it was one of those things that branched out from twice so because it's not a it's not a classic war game right like i mean that's that's the big well, there are a lot of pages. A lot of people have spent a lot of electrons uh, discussing whether Twilight Struggle is a war game on Board Game Geek. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I have I have no position on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know how useful it is to like spend time talking about you know definitions and semantics. Nor do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, to me, it's just I think it's it's nice to play a game that's not. Um, you're not trying to represent. St- represent something literally right you know these influence markers are not troops on the ground that are in this location no we used right? to have troops on the ground at twas struggle and we cut them oh really yeah right. we, we, because... we, we had army pieces and fleet support pieces and right. stuff and we just chopped all that because it was distracting interesting because that's it's always the obvious thing to do is like well i got i should have armies and they should be somewhere right right but like if you get rid of that it frees up the rest of the design because you no longer have to come up with rule like it was, when you have physical units on the board then everyone assumes that the you know that they should move a certain way right they're really important inertia to where they are you don't want them to get wiped out and blah 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 right they're valuable and important and yeah. you know they're, they're, they're they become the focal point yeah yeah and you you inherit a bunch of gameplay whether you want it or not right, right? sid 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 says you know whenever you add combat to a game you're adding <laughs> you're adding 80 percent more than you think you are yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> I and mean, that's why we have no combat in an off world right? right you know like you know as soon as we added combat you know it would then become like any other rts right? that's right um, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't expect you guys would have. But did that take long to get for you guys to get there, or to get uh, no? The it was they were in the game very briefly. <laughs> okay, they were in the game very briefly. Yeah. When it, when it, it, but that was basically it. it. Became completely clear that the whole rest of the design. So, like you said, you know, they just they just sucked up a huge amount of design uh, of player player attention oxygen. Where it's just like once we put these in, they affect every other system in the game, and they're not adding that much. That, that's the thing, you know, we were thinking about, well, you know, how do we handle things like the deployment to Vietnam or the Korean War and stuff yeah. like that. And then and then it was like, you know, we played around with it a little bit. And it's like, okay, first of all, we're, we're asking this question very specifically. Like, how are we dealing with these very specific things? Well, we already have a system for dealing with very specific things. The cards. The cards yeah. <laughs> so why why not just why not just use them <laughs> to handle yeah. these very specific things? And that's what we did. Yeah, well, it's a simple solution. Yeah. Um, Cool. Uh, so, I guess now we're kind of caught up to kind of where you finished the game. What was the process of getting it out there? Well, uh, there was a lot of luck. <laughs> so, it we, we we showed it to GMT at a at a convention, mm-hmm. and it was actually one of the very last Hunt Valley conventions before the WBC moved up to Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And they liked it. They thought it was cool, but they didn't think Cold War was going to be very compelling to people. You know, it's it's pretty undergamed. Uh, sure. You know, it's not it's not a war game, <laughs> or or is it? Right. <laughs> and so, and so, but but they had, because GMT had come up with the uh, Kickstarter before it was cool, mm-hmm. right? Their Project Five Hundred. Yep. Uh, they said, well, you know, we'll list it. It's no risk to us. And so we thought, well, that's cool. Uh, we're first time designers. We're just very happy to have a publisher's attention. Yep. So they put it on the list, and it crawled and crawled really? up the list. It was very slow. People were not super interested in pre-ordering it. Uh, and eventually, it got to five hundred, and and GMT wanted a little more cushion to be safe. <laughs> so I think it ended up getting to about seven hundred ish, maybe a little less than seven hundred pre-orders, mm-hmm. and. 
GMT said, okay, well, you know, we'll publish it. So they published, uh, they published it in... Did you feel like you had any other options at that point? Or, like, while it was slowly crawling along? Or did you feel like, well, it'll probably make it? No, but at the time I was really busy, so... Sure, I so I, uh, I, I, felt, I felt like it was going to get there. Yeah. I, I was pretty confident it was going to get there. And, and GMT had also assured us that, that, you know, once it got past 500, it was only a matter of time uh-huh. as to when it would be published in. And finding the right slot in the logistical process, and so and so that so, so they published a, a small print run, and uh, in at the end of two thousand five, and then um, a couple things happened. <laughs> the first thing that happened was Jason played it at the Gathering of Friends, which okay. is Alan Moon's mm-hmm. invitation only game convention in Ohio, and uh, Alan Moon posted somewhere I don't, I don't remember I, this was before twitter but he, he he made it known that he thought very highly of the game right and this caused an immediate surge of interest in an audience that pays more attention to alan moon's games the 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 euro the Eurogamer audience and that was huge and so there was just suddenly a lot of buzz and then uh and then what happened in february of 2006 was that GMT took about 25 copies to PressCon, mm-hmm. where which was sort of the first big convention uh, after Twice World's publication, and they sold out in 20 minutes. Wow. And GMT realized that they had a potential hit, but they they had and and the, so then but once those two things happened, the first the, the the first edition sold out very quickly, and GMT was caught in a in a bind because they wouldn't, wouldn't be able to have enough copies for the next, for the 2006 uh, convention season. So they mm-hmm. ended up having to go through the whole 2006 convention season with no copies to sell. But I think in some ways this actually, this might've actually increased the buzz mm-hmm. of sure, the game. Right, right. Um, but, and then once the second edition came out, uh, that too was snapped up very quickly. And, and then, and by then I think a critical mass of players had formed who had, saw that it was a card-driven game, who would realize, you know, the, the sort of card-driven fan contingent had gotten it, had, had gotten its hooks into it, and then, and by then, and so then we had a guaranteed hardcore audience, and then, and then I think the rest is history. Right. Wow. Cool. Um, so we should also talk, uh, during this time, you were also designing video games. I was, yes. Okay, so yes. what was your first, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was uh, Breakaway Limited. Yep. In, uh, this would have been in March two thousand three. March two thousand three. So, so you were working in public policy. Uh, I, I'd actually left public policy a year before to, okay. uh, or a couple of years before to, study computer science. I decided to go back to school oh, okay. and study programming. I was going to ask earlier since you started designing levels, whether you ever thought about learning to program. Um, I, I I sort of intentionally stayed away from programming to my to my, to my sort of lasting regret. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kept thinking that if I got into the game industry, then it would ruin gaming for me, and I didn't want to ruin it as a hobby. I, I had that mentality through almost all of college. Interesting. Uh, um, and I wanted to keep it as a hobby, you know. And um, by the time I realized, why? That was, I mean, I thought it was just. I thought. I thought it would. You know, it would move the curtain. You know, it would. Uh, right. Who? You know, nobody wants to see the sausage being made. You know. Yeah. I, I thought but it would. You didn't deep... have a desire to like do it yourself. Ah. Uh, I mean, I, I did kind of, but again, I, I I would say I did, but I I felt like it would ruin it. I felt like it would. I I wanted to play games more than I wanted to make them. Okay. And if I, I felt making them would be would would would, would ruin the playing. Uh, how and, did you think they were made? Like, did you have a concept that like, oh, there's probably video game companies oh, around the country, and like, I, I would say, um, 
I had very little idea of how they were made. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I kind of assumed that there were studios and groups of people making them. You know, I followed Sid Meier. Right. It's like, oh, you know, it's smart guys, uh, you know, sitting and, and thinking up ideas and then coding them and, and drawing them. And, and I, you know, right. but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd followed the development of Crow Wing Commander, you know, mm-hmm. read, read about Chris Roberts. And um, so I was, I was studying computer science and I was doing pretty well at it, but I, I could never shake the impression when I was in my classes that I would never be better than the 10th best programmer in the room. Okay. Right. Like I always looked around and I saw a lot of people and I'm like, wow, these, these people are a whole lot. These people, not all of them, but, but a, a large number of them are better coders than I'm ever going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe, maybe this is, maybe where I need to be, you, where, you stu- where were you studying it? Maryland college park. Okay. Um, and so, and so I, I, I decided yeah, and I mean, I you know, I, I did well even in the hard classes and so yeah. forth. But ultimately, I was like, I was like, I'm not sure I want to push this all the way through unless I'm unless I think I can be really good at it. And right. I don't think I can be really good at it compared to these other folks. And so, in 2003, I had by then I had beta tested and helped out on a number of, of video games, hmm. and. I had also met Ed Beach, okay. who is a board game designer as well mm-hmm. as a computer game designer. And he was working at Breakaway at the time. Right. And he, you know, we, we had met and played some games together at conventions for a couple of years. And then uh, I don't remember if he saw Twilight Struggle, but, but basically he had mentioned the possibility of joining the QA team at at, at breakaway mm-hmm. um and you know he he knew that i was a big civ fan and so right. and so he said you know i think i might have a slot for you and i said well uh i'm still in school but and this this would have been in you know 2002 mm-hmm. and then and he said okay well you know we'll see what happens i didn't hear much for a few months but then uh early in 2003 i was increasingly convinced that i was not going to finish my 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 uh, post back at, at, at college park and so ed offered me uh, an interview, mm-hmm. which I took, and and I so I dropped out of Maryland and started a breakaway in 2003. This was again I already had a, an under, undergraduate degree, sure. so I was not feeling like I was cheating my education. But but I uh, I went to breakaway in March 2003. I worked on Civ 3 Conquests, which was the expansion pack sure. for Civ 3. And then after did I, that, did I ever see you at Fraxis during that time? No, I, I never. Visit, I never visited Fraxis. I remember a number of people from Breakaway came through, and I would meet with them every once in a while about Conquest. But. I believe. I believe I. Uh, I believe that was probably all before okay. I, I I arrived. Like when I, when I when I arrived at Breakaway, Conquests was almost done. Was was close to done. I was okay. definitely in the QA in the QA phase. I was I was helping debug scenarios and uh-huh. and the multiplayer, getting it to be. Uh, compatible with uh Civ play the world okay yeah yeah right yeah you snicker yeah <laughs> that was quite the project yeah. yes yes uh-huh. indeed <laughs> um and so that was that was kind of interesting and uh but no well i mean the, the job was fascinating like i loved working on Civ three conquests it was right. a very invigorating and as that as that project went you were I, primarily testing at this point i was primarily testing but eventually but as it kind of proceeded i got i got more responsibilities like uh-huh. i got i got Assigned the job of designing the AI for the uh, for the AI, uh, designing the AI for uh, for sort of siege units, right? So, okay. the World War II scenario was running into some issues with like order of operations and priority. It was a very simple design problem, or a very co- compartmentalized design problem of like, look, I'm bombing or I'm bombarding this space, 
how does the AI decide whether to bombard and when it does bombard, what happens? Uh-huh. You know, what should the order of effects be and so forth? And so I came up with a system for that, and that turned out reasonably well. Was that in C++? No, no, that was that that, that was me writing a spec. I didn't cover Oh, oh you designed the AI. Yeah, and I didn't. Someone implemented it. That's right. That's okay. Someone else implemented it. Okay. And that worked out pretty well. And then, um, uh, and I wrote a lot of Civilopedia text. <laughs> sure. And for, for a bunch of the scenarios, including Ed Beach's medieval scenario and his Age of Discovery scenario, all of which were great fun. And after that, Breakaway landed a contract with a film company called York Zimmerman mm-hmm. to do a game called A Force More Powerful, which is right. a strategy game about nonviolent struggle. And they were Breakaway was aware of my policy background and of my interest in that sort of thing. And so they asked me if I wanted to design the game. And I, of course, was... I mean, I was... 26 at the time maybe mm-hmm. 25 26 uh and i of course jumped at the opportunity to be lead designer on a on a on a, on a strategy game mm-hmm. um now looking back there's a lot of things i would have done differently that was a good game to sh- that was a good game to to learn the ropes on but uh and i had a lot of support uh, mm-hmm. i had a lot of support but um i think that game was was a lot less ended up being a lot less than it could and should have been, mm-hmm. but I certainly learned a lot working right. on it. Just about everything. I how, learned so a lot how did that, how did that game work? So uh, that game was it. W- it was a pseudo turn based game, a sort of plausible real time, okay. and you controlled the movement, mm-hmm. which was a what group was the that, scale of the game. Well, it was a little bit abstract. So you had individual people who sort of rose to prominence, and then you had groups, uh-huh. uh, sort of Illuminati-style groups, where you could—I uh, mean, Illuminati, the card game—you okay. know, where where you could kind of. The idea was to sort of bring these groups into your into your camp uh-huh. and away from the regime's camp, and the, the those were the sort of core concepts. But the scenarios were all sort of very specific, right? So they'd have specific Lewis scripting to proc events and. Uh, and the maps, the maps had this very handwritten feel to them, and the the, the you know the, the maps had had hot spots on them that represented um, uh, sort of opportunities for you to go in and, and, and spread your influence. I was pretty influenced by a, a game called uh, Hidden Agenda, which was mm-hmm. uh, an old black and white game or yeah yeah where you were in charge in that game you were in charge of running a Central American country that had no map and. It had all these people called influentials that you would visit, and you could, and they all had different preferences for policies, and that was influence. That was a big influence on me too. The idea that fundamentally the game was about getting the regime's policies to match yours. Okay. Right? You you were trying to move That's preferred how you policies. Win, so to speak. That was basically how you won. Was that you would get the regime's preferred policies over to what you wanted, mm-hmm. what you wanted, and. Um, there were some times when we throw a, left, a, a sort of a curveball with a script where it's like, oh, now there's an election. So, regardless of what policies are, you have to win the election, you know. Right. And I felt like, I don't know, um, we bit off much more than we could chew in terms of of scope for right. the for the scenarios, right? The, it was just not possible to generate a generic rule set that could handle the variety and diversity of scenarios that the client wanted us to mm-hmm. to be able to simulate. Was it kind of big fuzzy simulation yeah and 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 it had too much simulation in it yeah like ultimately i felt like the game would have been a lot better if it had been more abstract even if it had been just a card game to a certain extent it would have been much better but there it was not transparent that's right breakaway was very invested in selling itself as a simulation company right where they could 
show those simulation bona fides to uh, to government clients and non-government clients. The government wants basically. It is, uh, and this was not a government client, but Breakaway wanted to be able to show this to government clients and say, "Look, we can make really yeah. great simulations and a very complex phenomena." So I've always been a little confused. Was this? Is I've heard I've heard about this game some, but I've never I've never played it. But was it intended as a commercial game or an no? Game? It was it was it was definitely intended as a teaching tool for the people that the film company or Zimmerman was attempting to prepare for their actual real life struggles. Okay, so it was intended to be given to actual activists. Yes, that's right. Okay, did that happen? Uh, I think so. Okay. I think so. I mean, we, we definitely showed it to a bunch of real-life activists, of real-life actual activists, <laughs> I know. At, uh, in, in Montreal in this, at this really <laughs> odd, this, uh, 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 Peter Ackerman, who was the, uh, mm-hmm. sort of the ultimate money behind the project, uh, he put together this summit where a whole bunch of activists from all over the world in various conflicts at the time, so Serbia and Zimbabwe, uh, North Korea, uh, you know, a couple of North Korean escapees, mm-hmm. um, that they had come and they came to look at the game and as well as, I mean, that wasn't the main purpose of it, but they, the, the summit had all sorts of lectures and, and training sessions for people. Uh, and I got to attend. <coughs> that was a fantastic experience that, sure. to be able to talk to these people uh, and to show them the game. And to me, the summit was a really good evidence that we were heading, that we had, we had, were barking up the wrong tree with the game in mm. terms of how so. In terms of accessibility, um, okay. you know, my view on the game was that if it's not fun, it doesn't matter how well it trains people uh-huh. because people won't play it. Right. Uh, but other folks at Breakaway had the view that fidelity and training value were the most important because people would have intrinsic motivation to play. Fidelity meaning they felt like the simulation was... The simulation needed to be... Was, in, was re- like was real like yeah the that, that, like, that the simulation needed to be predictive and uh-huh. it needed it needed to handle things realistically so the, they were they were portraying it to the activists like if you make these decisions in the game and you see the results if you made these decisions in real life you would see similar results yeah and yes do you, do, you, do you feel that was true no no <laughs> certainly not certainly not what, what i what i felt what i felt like i came to the view that what we needed to be teaching was it was much more general concepts. The idea of resource trade-offs, right? Uh-huh. The idea of risk-reward payoff. Right. You know, if you embark on this high-cost, high-risk uh, uh, activist operation, you know, you decide to put together a mass protest. Uh, you have to be prepared for the possibility of, of, of catastrophic failure and the crippling of your movement. Right. Right. <coughs> uh, a question of time. You know, I, I, general questions of timing, like. Right. In, in, and in that case, what, what I, I, I did want to do was to encode the principles that the trainers were trying to teach. Like, there's a right time to call a mass protest, yeah. right? And it's when these conditions are met. And the trainers, and, 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 and if the trainers said that, that was good enough for me yeah. to say, okay, then that means in the game, if you do it with these conditions met, then you'll have these good results. Right. right? Like, I was definitely very happy to outsource that kind of, of, of sort of going out on a limb and saying if you do X, Y, and Z under conditions A, B, and C, then you'll have these results. Right. Um, but uh, So was there a lot of back and forth of like the simulation isn't doing like the simulation should be doing this, but it's actually doing that and like um, There was there was some of that. I, I, I feel like I mean like how were they trying to guarantee that the simulation was accurate in their minds? Well, so eventually, eventually there was convergence internally on the team about okay, if the simulation does what the trainers say Ought to happen. Sorry, who are the trainers? 
the people who work for your Zimmerman and for Peter okay. Ackerman, who who uh, who wanted to be training the activists, yeah, yeah, and and some of these some of the trainers were themselves activists, sure, um, you know, yeah. uh, and so the idea was very straight, you know, the idea was so so there eventually was convergence, like, look, let's not us worry about too much about the simulation, let's just make sure it matches what the trainers are teaching, sure, and then and then we'll be on solid ground and and we'll also be working within our expertise and letting yeah. them work within theirs. Well, I think about I think about sort of the question of games versus simulations a lot um, in that um, I think it's very important to like know what which one you're making and like I think they have very different implications for like what type of decisions you're going to make and yeah. I think simulations have uh, I mean I, my prejudice is kind of against them in general but like I think they have Kind of a very much more limited use. Well, let me okay. Let me give this as an example. Especially if people come to, if they have any belief that the simulation is going to give them accurate information about the world. Right. right. Like I do X, Y happens in the game. This should happen in the real world. Right. Therefore, if I do that, yeah. Right. I think that's a very dangerous mindset. And like the, the example I like to give about this is, um, are you familiar with sabermetrics? Yes. Do you know what that is? Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you follow it? Like, do you know who Voris McCracken is? No, I know who I know who Bill James is. Okay, okay. So Voris McCracken is the guy who, um, you know, he wrote this paper, maybe like two thousand something like that, that just basically like cracked, like everyone's understanding of baseball like wide open. Like he was the guy who who pointed out that a pitcher does not have control of what happens to the ball after the batter hits it. Right. Right. That, um, that the only thing the pitcher really has control over is walks, strikeouts, and to some extent, home runs. Right. Right. That, uh, you know, once, if the ball is hit, it's basically just a random chance, you know, yeah. whether it's going to, uh, you know, be a hit or it's going to turn into a ground out or a pop out or whatever. Um, and that was like a bombshell when that went on, when he wrote that paper. Okay, and what was this? Uh, I think it was around 2000, something okay. like that. Maybe or maybe a couple of years before then. I think it was. I think it was in the late 90s, actually. Um, but basically, no one had ever thought that before, right? Like okay. that. That was just not the assumption, right? Like everyone thought, like you know, great pitcher Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, whatever. Like these guys, they're not just good at getting strikeouts; they're also good at preventing batters from getting hits, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, what they looked at is like year after year after year, the you know, if you take the, the strikeouts and the walks out of the equation, you're just seeing random noise of like how often the opposing batter is able to like get a hit. Okay. Right? Like the, 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 this was, you know, the, the, the acronym is, or the, the statistics is, you know, B-A-B-I-P, batting average against balls in play. Like okay. if you hit the ball in play, how often do you get a hit, right? And, you know, you can turn that against the pitcher of like, if the pitcher, you know, if the batter hits the ball, how often does it get hit? And like a good pitcher, maybe one year that's 350, and then the next year it's 250, and the next year it's 300, and the next year it's this. It's just it's just jumping it's up just, and down. It's just yes, it's like just random it's just yep. random. It's just random noise. Whereas a good pitcher from year to year will get eight strikeouts per nine innings and might walk three guys per like that's consistent. Mm -hmm. Like that's like okay, this is the thing they have control over, and this is the thing they don't have control over, right? So <laughs> this is this is a long diversion, but my point is is that a lot of people have written baseball simulations. Yes. Right? And their, their simulations are based off of their understanding of the game. Before this paper, everyone who wrote a baseball simulation 
put the pitcher in as a variable, yeah, as they, a controlling variable on the outcome of a hit. Right, exactly. Like they, right. At some point it decides, okay, this isn't a strikeout, this isn't a walk, it's a hit. And is it a good pitcher? Well, then there's it's probably going to be a ground out. Right. Right. Whereas right. after that paper, everyone who wrote baseball, at least everyone who's paying attention right. to like the current literature, would not do that. Right, it would just be random. So what that means is every, every baseball situation pre-McCracken was junk. Right. Right. Was not it actually was fundamentally baseball. flawed, yes. and every simulation after may still be junk. May still be junk. We don't know. We, but we don't know. They've right? improved in at least one crucial. Yeah, they've improved one crucial respect. But like, uh, but the point is, is that a simulation can only ever be as good as your your what you your already your current understanding of. Right. Yeah. Like, the model the model that you have must be. Yeah, it's not going to teach you something that you don't already know, and chances are, like what you are what you already think a lot of what you think you know. Is not correct anyway. Yes. And so, you know, it's, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, yes. right? Like whatever your incorrect assumptions are when they go into the simulation are just going to be magnified yes. essentially because there's already a lot of noise inside the system. Yeah, working on a force more powerful sour mail simulation quite a lot. Yeah. Just as a concept, I will not deny that. Yeah. And uh, even during the project, I came, I, I was coming to that realization where the the things, you know, the things that. Uh, the things that were seeming to be expected or expected of simulation seemed to me to be unattainable. Right. And so I compensated for that by putting a lot of randomness in the in the models of the game, just to, you know, j j just to sort of at least give the player <coughs> the experience that, you know, what you do can have a variety of outcomes, and you can you can nudge them. Right. But but even that is probably not true. With, a, with respect to a lot of the parameters that I put in, right? I mean, right. You know, it's not. It's not that, right? You know, in the example you just gave, it's not that the pitcher has nudging influence. He has no influence right. over the outcome of yeah. the hit, and that's you know that's that's a big step. So, um, and and so that and that was that, that I didn't put it to the trainers in that stark of a terms, but you know what I tried to get from them was what what are we emphasizing here? Mm -hmm. You know. What are the lessons you need people to learn, and then I'll 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 make the game work to teach right. the lessons you want them to learn, even if, even if it's not, yep. even if it's not a uh, an accurate simulation. Yeah, but... yeah, and so so like from my point of view, if I, if I was, if I was ever going to make like a baseball game that put you in the role of like a general manager or something, like I wouldn't I wouldn't even be trying to say like okay, this is an accurate simulation of baseball, right? Like right. forget about it. the thing. But the, but I can do is I can say like okay, there are mechanics in this game that mean you have to make decisions about do I sign the veterans to an expensive long term contract or do I trade them away and invest in you know or and just you know you know trade them away for a bunch of young players who are going to be you know it's going to be hard to predict what's going to happen to them, but potentially it's going to pay off in the long run. Right. Right. You know, which is you know, just this basic short-term versus long-term strategy. Like, right. Like that's, that's a real thing. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's accurate, but it's, it's an emotional reality or whatever you want to call it. It's a, it's a, well, it's, it's a it, mental again, reality of being a, a general manager. Right. right. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier. You want to get into the mind, you want to get the player into the right mindset, which right. is the one you want them in. Yeah. And that's, that's how you get there. Yeah. And you listed a, a number of them, you know, of, like, what the activists should be considering about, like, when do we protest, and, like, what groups yeah. do we get involved with, and, like... So That's right. What are, what are the costs and benefits of bringing this group into the coalition? How about that group? Oh, that group... That group has, has engaged in violent conduct. Yeah. You know, that's something... That's that's a big point that is, is, is hit often in those training sessions, is, look, 
you're trying to build a nonviolent coalition that is committed to nonviolent political change. Here is an influential group that nonetheless has elements in it you know uh, use violence. Right. What are the costs and benefits of bringing them into the coalition? Right. Can you can you get them to buy in? Yeah. You know, and if you don't, what are the costs of that? Yeah. You know, and you can create those tensions for the player with what appear to be very gamey, transparent rules. Yes. Right. And yeah. that yeah, and and ultimately, I was trying to head in that direction towards you know as the project progressed, but I don't think it's I don't think that was compatible with Breakaway's business goals as much. Yeah. So. Well, and I think that there's probably a lot of people who come to. Uh, what's the right way to put this? Um, you know, I think a lot of people who are coming from you know academics or serious games or whatever, um, you know, they feel like they want a simulation because they don't necessarily respect like what game rules can do for you. That's right. Right. You know, like how how you can get what you need just with you know, transparency is going to make things easier for you, not necessarily harder. Right. That's right. Um, That's right. So. It's going to get people thinking in the way much more in the way that you want them to. Right. You know, you want you you ultimately, ultimately, you want people to be able to think more critically and more analytically about the problems that they're that you that that, that they're not engaging with as well as they could be, and transparency helps that. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, you made your way to uh, Fraxis. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, was had you... one stopping point in between, but yes. Okay. Uh, was... Worth worth discussing, or I, I was at Zenimax Online working on the Elder Scrolls Online. Okay. As a systems designer, I learned. A huge amount there. Okay. I met an enormous number of talented people, but that was not a strategy game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been pretty scared of working on MMOs. It seems like. I, I loved. I loved working on the MMO, but um, uh, I'm. I'm glad it's. But I think I probably will not work on another MMO. It was. It was a terrifying. It was a. Yeah. A lot has to go right on MMOs. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Um, okay. Cool. And then you made it to Firaxis. Yes. And did you? Uh, did you start there in XCOM or on something else? I started in XCOM, yeah. I came on very close to the end of XCOM Enemy Unknown. I came on uh, just a few months before pre-alpha uh, in July of 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the issue that XCOM was having was that Jake Solomon had too many jobs. He sure. had two and a half jobs. Yeah. He was the lead gameplay designer. You know, he was the lead designer on the project. He was the lead gameplay engineer and sort of the half of the lead systems architect. Right. And that is uh, one and a half two jobs too many for anyone. And so he needed some help uh, pulling the threads of the game together, organizing the design a little. And so that was why I was hired. I came on to, to, to sort of be his sounding board and to be his uh, uh, to, to be his sounding board and to help and, and to help shepherd systems that he knew he wanted but and, but was willing to entrust to someone else. Okay. And so... So for tactical layer, or the strategic layer, just across the whole initially, game? Or? Initially, it seemed like the... So when I, when I was interviewing, the impression I got was that it was the strategy layer that really needed help the most. Okay. Uh, but when I arrived, it was clear that there were a number of elements in the tactical game that also needed to be sort of organized. Um, Such as... So the biggest one was the soldiers, the, the the soldiers and their gear. So the main the main problem that was that was that we were that we had identified was that, and then this would come back in publisher feedback was that the the soldiers don't have players don't get any emotional attachment to the soldiers, right? They care only about the guns. 
Okay. Because the guns will give people their abilities. You know, if you pick up a, a really high tech gun, then you can use all the high tech gun abilities. So you, you couldn't upgrade your soldiers at this point. Is that right? You could. They they had stat increases and rank increases and so forth, and so they definitely got better, but not in a really visceral way. You know, okay. they got better in a numeric way. Okay, um, so they didn't have the upgrades at that point. The class. You know, they had no classes. Oh, they had no classes at all. No, wow. okay. there were no classes. You uh, were what you you were what weapon you took. That's right. Okay. You're right. So if you took a sniper rifle, you were a sniper, and you 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 were, and you got to do all the all this all the snipery stuff came off of the the weapons. And I I assume that's how the original game worked. Is yes. That right? right. Yes, okay. and I think that's why it worked that way in EU at that time in the project was that I think that I think it, that was sort of what was what was being gone for. And so yeah, your soldiers were very interchangeable in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously you prefer a high rank soldier because of the stats, but sure. But the the um, the guns were really what people cared about. And so, with Jake, I, you know, I, I told Jake, you know, I just spent four years working on MMO, so, you know, you may take this as bias, but I think we should have classes, <laughs> right? So we we had uh, we had class we 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 ended up uh, creating classes, uh, and putting the abilities on uh, training trees, and that that just instantly I think really helped that that problem because uh-huh. it, it solved it's not only did it solve the emotional attachment problem it also solved a couple of problems that we didn't know we had okay which were if you equip a new gun and you've got a new bunch of new buttons and possibly even new passive abilities suddenly you're in tactical and you're like okay this guy's got a shotgun let me see what these abilities do you have to go through yeah. all of them all the time yeah like... yeah exactly and moreover if there are certain abilities like suppression that makes sense even on the conventional assault rifle, then they have to go on the conventional assault rifle, and that means all of a sudden your very first mission, you've got a bunch of fairly arcane yep. tactical abilities when what you really care about is shooting and reloading. Right, yeah. And what taking the abilities off the, the classes, or sorry, off the weapons and putting them on the soldiers and metering them out gradually, that meant that players taught themselves the abilities in the yeah. context of choosing which one they wanted. Yeah, I mean, that's the classic thing that works in RPGs, right? You yes. You get everything up front and you work your way through it. That's right. That's right. And so, and I think that that really helped with the tactical game quite a lot. Yeah. Um, well, I, I bet. It, I, you bring it up and I didn't, it's one of those design decisions you don't even think about. From an external level, it just seems like, well, obviously that's the thing you should do. Right. Um, and, right. <laughs> and it's funny how many times in projects it's like, well, we actually had to get it took some time to actually come to the realization that we got we had to do the the thing that seems obvious that worked right that's right that's right yes yes uh, internally that was i mean i mean and to the team's to the team's enormous credit they bought into the classes very quickly right and and i think the value of them you know the value of them was really was really clear sure uh, and then <clears throat> on the strategy layer we were trying to fix the issue that the game didn't feel global enough. Okay. And so that resulted in, in adding a new room, the situation room, which has a big map. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what was interesting about that was that then exposed how non-transparent... Now, was, that, was, that a, so that was that largely a UI change, or did that fundamentally change the... It, it, so we thought it was going to be a UI change. Right. But it actually ended up exposing some more core issues uh-huh. such as the way the panic system worked the, the way the panic system worked was not not very clean and the way that you scan for UFOs the way that you have radar and stuff around the world that was not uh, that was not well in other words once we opened that window 
for the player. And it's like, okay, what are we showing here? And it's like, oh, wow, we're showing a system that is really convoluted. Mm-hmm. And so Jake and I worked together to adapt the system that was then exposed mm-hmm. uh, into what became the satellite system, the panic system. And the satellite system is probably one of the things that we, you know, that, that both Jake and I feel is, is, is the one thing we would do over <laughs> even then. But it was, it was, it, but it definitely, it definitely met the need we were going for, which was a sense of expansion throughout the world, mm-hmm. a sense of progress and a, and a, and a, and a countermeasure to spreading global panic. Right. What was uh, there before? There was, there, there was a panic system and countries could enter and leave, uh, countries could leave the, the, the XCOM project but you had these um, these radar posts that you would place in continents, uh-huh. and you know, so you'd say I'm building a I'm building a radar post in Europe, right? And then a radar thing would go, and it would, you know, it's a lot like the '93 game, except that '93 game you had pixel by pixel control where these things went. Uh-huh. Here you could just place them on a continent, and the problem the problem was actually, and, and that that ended up exacerbating one of the big problems in the '93 game. In the 93 game, you always build one of your bases in North America and one in Europe because geographically, there are more funding members uh-huh. in Europe and they're smaller surface areas. So you get, for one for the price of one radar, you get coverage of more valuable people right. uh, in terms of, in terms of, in, in a purely funding sense, not in a moral sense, of course, but, right. but, um, but uh, the, the, um, Oh, where was I going with that? Um, so, but that that didn't that didn't work for the game, right? Uh, and so, because we wanted you to build more, you know, we didn't want you to just build in North America and Europe. That's that's narrow and, and, right. and prescribed. And so, and so we we sort of said, okay, satellites are more of a an abstract thing where you, you put a satellite over Nigeria and now Nigeria is protected and you can go and patrol there. And you can intercept from from there. You can intercept in that continent, and that just cleaned up a lot. And you know, adding that visibility in there cleaned up a lot. And Jake knew this was an issue. Like Jake, he was, and and he 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 had been kind of putting in some solutions just to expose, just to sort of better define the problem himself. And but it was once once we sort of went, we sort of doubled down on this situation room and like, look, this is gonna be a major room. It's got a big UI element. Um, it's got a you know it's got a big map that's going to show important information to the player. Then, that then said okay, well that important information is much too convoluted. So now we need to we we need to solve that. Um, and the other thing that and that that uh, that I ended up uh, sort of owning was the special missions, uh, the bomb missions, okay. and the VIP missions. And those were great because those provided a, a, a variety that I think. The game really would have suffered without. Yeah, and that was another tactical thing, and that was something that once that, and that was again a great instance of, you know, we recognized the need really quickly, we figured out what to do, and then the the level design team just just went to work on it. Like right. they they really executed on that on on the special missions, and you know those were touch and go for a while. Those those were definitely not hitting the polish level that we needed them to hit by a certain date, but we we. We really doubled down on that, and we were able to get them shippable. And the the LD team did a fantastic job, right? On uh, on those. Yeah. Well, I like I definitely like the bomb missions because I think one of the one of the issues with with the XCOM tactical 
maps is that you aren't you're never really punished for taking your time. Right, the conservative play issue. Yep. Yeah, and yep. something we've if, grappled with for a long time. If that's there, I mean, if you know, play, players ruin games for themselves all the time. But mm -hmm. I mean, you're conservative, right? And like, if the game encourages you for being conservative, you're going to do that. Which, first of all, is not that much fun. Yep. And second of all, increases the play time, which yep. by itself makes the game less fun. Yep. Right. And um, you know, so how do you how do you get them out of that that situation? Um, Right, and the bomb missions really help with that, just by at least throwing a curveball there. Uh, ultimately, we couldn't deal fully with that until Enemy Within, where we introduced the melt mechanic, right? And the the idea of of timed of time loot on the map, right? Uh, and that that helped, again, some. It didn't help uh, fully, you know, it didn't solve it fully, but it helped some. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure what a, like a, a a true solution to that could be beyond like, you know, you know that the like every mission is time to begin with so you're trying to do as good as you can within those parameters right um but thematically that might seem weird like do the aliens just disappear i mean i guess maybe you could do that um yeah i mean maybe the aliens are doing something and you have so many turns to stop them you know they're there we've believe me that's a that's a well <laughs> that's a well-trod topic yeah yeah uh, on the on the on the XCOM side of the building yeah um what did you think i mean so you played a lot of the original XCOM. Yes, um, and I've heard I've heard Jake describe, um, you know, harkens back to something we talked about earlier. The difference between the the old version and the new version is it feels like the old version is very much like a simulation, and the new version is much more of a game. Um, did you? I've heard that. I've heard that comparison made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how did you, what did you feel about the changes that were being made compared to the old? Like, what what are the strengths of the old one, and what are the strengths of the new one? Oh, so I I didn't have a huge emotional attachment. I mean, I have very fond memories of it, but sure. I, I did not have a huge emotional attachment to the specific mechanics of the old one. You know, I don't miss time units very much. Yeah. Um, I felt that... I, I mean, I guess... So, so to me, to me, the, the, the main thing that, the, the, that what we did at Firaxis, that, that it made the game into less of a sandbox, right? Mm -hmm. And... And to me, that was not a great loss because I'm not—I actually don't like sandbox games very much. Mm -hmm. um, so, the fact—the fact that the first one was more of a sandbox, to me, was overshadowed by the fact that it was about fighting off an alien invasion, which was super cool, right. you know. But I, I generally don't like sandbox games, so the fact that it was less sandboxy to me, incre I, I was—I was really, really on board when I when I when I arrived and I saw 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 the game. Sure. Um, I think the strengths of the old one. Um, there's definitely, I mean, so obviously the old one with procedural maps is is, sure. is a that's that's a huge strength of the old game is the is the random maps and the not knowing what's you know what's going to happen. It has a somewhat more robust support of like night and day, for example. There are certain tactical features that are just cool about mm -hmm. the old game that we don't support in the, uh, in, the in, in in Enemy Unknown or Enemy Within. Um, and then uh, and procedural maps for for the new one that was. Largely, sort of like a, an art tech issue. Is that right, or was that? Yeah, yeah, well? yeah. Jake has said that procedural maps were the thing that he wanted most in EU that he didn't get, and yeah, that was it. Was primarily it was it was a technical and a content pipeline issue. Um, it, it's interesting, you know. Um, there have been other games that have done procedural or attempted to do procedural uh, that have not succeeded at procedural right you know so fans fans wonder you know why you know why can't you do procedural look at this other game that's doing procedural and it turns out that other game's not doing procedural because like, it's like hard which one 
Well, I'm thinking of Xenonauts. Okay. So Xenonauts, Xenonauts started out very procedural. Uh-huh. Now they're a lot less procedural. Hmm. Interesting. Because it turns out that procedural is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are games that have done procedural completely, like Invisible Ink. And Invisible Ink is a really good game. Uh, and they get away with procedural with... I mean, they they, get, they, they their maps are, are, are fully procedural, although they're not very diverse, yeah. right? So, you know, they're, they tend to be mostly endorsed, sort of sterile corporate. Well, they're very tile-based, room-based, which helps, right? Yeah, that helps a lot. Yeah. That helps a lot. If, 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 if the whole game takes place inside of buildings... Then you can make buildings. You can you can do that much more easily. So, right. so yeah, there are definitely trade offs there. Um, things that I think we did a lot better on EU than on the original game. I think I think we did soldiers better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm biased there, of course, but I think yeah. I think we did soldiers and gear and progression just generally better. Yeah. I mean, looking back to the original, to me it just seems crazy that what could you have like 12, 16 guys? More. I mean, I think on the <laughs> I think on the very final game uh, on the very final. The very best transport you could build could carry like twenty two. Yeah, it's such a throwback to those those days of gaming where it's like, oh, and you'll keep upgrading, you'll get more and more and more, more and, and more like and more and it'll more. make the game better, right? Yeah. And, oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Too many guys. I think we. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think we. You know, I think I think our our soldier and progression and gear are are generally better. I think. Um, I think our enemies are kind of more are, are cooler. You know, because they also have neat abilities and, um, and, oh, you know, sort of visual variety. Uh, I think, I think, EU's, <coughs> I think EU's sort of featured missions, mm-hmm. like the alien base, are very strong. Yeah. Um, not maybe maybe they don't hold up as much on repeated playthroughs, but the rest of the game I think does, and, right. and players forgive that. So, what do you think about permadeath? Oh well, I, th- I mean, permadeath was permadeath a core concept for XCOM, and sure. we, you know, there was no way that we were not doing permadeath, um, and so so that drove other decisions. You know, it drove, for example, the decision not to have respec in the game, right? Like, there, you can't respec your soldiers because a put allowing the player to put much that that much effort into somebody who could then just take a plasma shot to the face and die is is a little bit of a trap, and secondly. Uh, so I mean, soldiers are also so easy to oh, get. Yeah, sorry, you 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 didn't let people rechange their upgrades. Right. right? Yeah. We we don't because if they could get killed, that, you, you think it's we, we wanted to put we wanted to put a we wanted to sort of soft cap the amount of effort you can put into your in, into any individual. Oh, soldier. oh, I see. Because right. like, oh, I've I've redone this guy four or five times. Right, and then and, and then he's, he's gone. and then he's just dead. Huh. And then. Yeah. And, and and then you. Feel... I would have not allowed respecking for other reasons. There are other reasons not. Yeah. To, there are other reasons. I mean, it, it, it complicates the UI. It complicates. Right. It just makes the decisions more meaningful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and again, I mean, if you have your if you have your sniper and you don't like how your sniper spec, then recruit another soldier, get a sniper, and right. and, and and rank up and and spec spec that one the way you want. You know, soldiers are soldiers aren't. You know, it was important to remember that that even though we were adding a certain RPG special sauce to this with the classes and the specking, this is not an RPG. Right. And we don't need to support the same level of of uh, sort of character support that an RPG has. Right. Um, and then, uh, and so with permadeath. That I mean, that affected a lot of decisions. You know, it affected the XP curve, which we made very forgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, probably too forgiving in EU. It ended up getting a little steeper in EW. Um, 
because we were terrified of wipe recovery. You know, we thought, yeah. oh god, we need, we really need to give give wipe recovery um, at an early. You know, if we we want you not to be in restart land, even if you wipe on the alien base, for example. You right. know, if you're 18 wipes on the alien base, you can still you can still bounce back from that. Um, and uh, the, I mean, I think permadeath. I, I think permadeath, though, really affects the internal player narrative in a mm-hmm. way that you know, in, in a way that few mechanics can. So, sure. so that was that was also, I think, essential to our thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, it it's one of the first things you think of when you think of XCOM. So, you know, I wouldn't ever say you should get rid of permadeath, but um, there is a big problem with permadeath in that it, it, it you know, even though it seems very meaningful, it, it also encourages very conservative play. Yes, and considering the maps, you know, already kind of have that problem to begin with, like that to me, that's one of the that's one of the, the weak points of XCOM is if it starts pushing people down that path, you know, and like how you know are there ways are there ways to improve that, you know, he, like like off the top of my, my head, like I what I would have emphasized perhaps more is um, focusing more on like injuries, the death, right. Right, you know, like you have kind of like you know, you can see almost like in Darkest Dungeon, right? Like where, and have you played that yet? No, not yet. But it, it very much has like an XCOM feel, and it's like you're constantly churning through your roster, so not churning in that the guys die out. It's just like every time you go in a dungeon, probably four or five of your twelve guys are not available. Right. So it's like you almost always have a different set of group of guys. Right. They're on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. So we we kind of ended up there a little, you know. We gave we have the bleeding out mechanic. Yeah. And the chance of your guy bleeding out instead of dying upon reaching zero health is increased with your will stat. Mm-hmm. Your will stat increases with rank. Yeah. So the longer that your soldiers live, okay. the more likely they are to be saveable. But you can still, I mean, that's not foolproof. You, they can bleed out still. The timer can still expire and then, then they die. But um, uh, we did talk about injuries. Um, injuries... I mean, leaving aside again that that permadeath was a core value for the game because sure. it was it was essential to the '93 game. We have talked about injuries, but ultimately, where we came down on injuries in general was that um, if you accumulate too many permanent injuries, then you then you might as well have a dead soldier for all the use they're going to be. Sure. So, you know, do injuries just take a long time to wear off? Do you have to do something special to strip them? Yeah. Um, you know, blah 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 blah, yeah. and then um, well, you should definitely, of course, you know, now you'll be um, on your way from Fraxis anyway. But like uh, the future XCOM teams, they should definitely try to darkest dungeon because it's not just injuries; they also it's that stress meter, yes, which is right. something sort of built in to be like this is a problem, and first of all, it's not permanent. You know, it's going to go down. There's things you can do to make it go down, and it's also a judgment call, right? Like, um, sure, if a guy has 100% stress. You don't take him on a mission, right? If he has zero percent stress, take him on a mission. But if he has twenty or thirty percent stress, right? Like, well, you know, yeah, exactly. So, like, it it it's a nice it's a nice feature for you know that type of thing of like there's there's a nice gray area in the middle of, of how it mixes up your guys. I'm looking forward to playing Darkest Dungeon. I haven't played it because it's still early access. Yeah. I have a very high bar for early access. It's hard to know what which to... includes yours. Yeah, <laughs> you yep. playing yours. Yeah, it's hard to know what to re- recommend with that game because. Uh, it's worth like I I played it for a few hours and like oh there's lots of really cool, cool stuff here but it's also the type of game that has a real big arc from starting your characters to finishing it and mm-hmm. you know I, at, once I, I saw like oh this is a cool game I see some good ideas now I'm gonna put it on the shelf 
and wait for it to release because I also quickly saw that like it had this problem of it was way too hard for the first two or three hours and then it got way too easy. Interesting. Right. And just because they haven't, you know They haven't done that yet. Yeah. I mean right. they're they're working their way through it and it's gonna take some time and like yeah, it's a it's totally crazy now how you play games and like when you're supposed to play something and when you shouldn't say play something and like it's I think that's a problem to be honest. Yeah. I really do. I think that's a tough that's a tough thing for people. Um I mean, I played yours because because mm-hmm. uh, I was really interested and because I, I you know the buzz around the office was great, but mm-hmm. but I have uh, I have generally stayed away from early access. I did play Prison Architect, sure, which uh, is definitely early access and has had added a lot of features since I started playing. But I haven't played it for a while. I'm kind of waiting for it to be done now. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I'm very grateful for the people who are willing to play off-world early access. And, like, I mean, generally I tell people, like, if, you, if you're not sure, just just wait, you know? Like, put on your wish list, and we really hope you buy it when we release. Um, but <clears throat> for the people who are willing to kind of, like, go through all the crazy changes, you know, every couple weeks, you know, with it, I think that's, that's, that's awesome that they're willing to do that. But I totally understand people don't. I mean, I think some people, like, that's, they get a kick out of that process. Like, yes. Like, the multiplayer community, like, every three or four weeks, it's a slightly different game. And they're going to be looking for, like, oh, what are the three or four major gameplay changes? And now we're going to try to figure out what's the new way to break the game, right? Right. And uh, so that's just, it's a different thing, right? Having a crew of people want to break your game for you is pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Definitely. So uh, that probably leaves Enemy Within, I guess. Um, Yeah. uh, So did you... Kill right onto that after like you were you were the lead designer on that. Right? Yeah, I was the lead designer on that. I started on that at uh, I think I was halftime on that starting in July of 2012. So you know three months before you released, I was at least starting to <coughs> come up with the come up with the the, the design for that um, mm-hmm. and to start talking about ideas with art and with tech. So what were your high level goals? Well, um, we we basically so my, my goals at the beginning were add spies because I love spies. Um, I wanted to explore the idea of what would the aliens make of Earth if they were to conquer it, right? So I really wanted to get into this idea of of how would the Thin Man or the Sectoids transform some chunk of Earth that they now control into Thin Man Paradise or Thin Man version of Earth or Muton version of Earth. Um, and I also I wanted to try to address conservative play. Yeah. I wanted to see if loot could work in an XCOM game. And so those two kind of went together into the meld mechanic. And then <coughs> I also wanted... The, the, the enemy within theme came to me really early, thinking about uh, how can we... You know, X, XCOM is all about this idea of turning the alien's tech against them. You know, you start out hanging on by your fingernails with your crappy conventional real-world Earth tech, and then you, you kind of take over their stuff. And so the question is, how can that be driven even further? Right? There's an expansion pack, so how can it be driven even further? The answer was by incorporating their stuff into your own bodies, right? Like, actually, by morphing your soldiers into mechs and gene mod, you know, g- genetic modification, these, these sort of very edgy technologies that really show that XCOM is willing to go the whole distance to, to win the war against the aliens. Mm-hmm. I, felt like, I felt like that was plenty. Um, so the idea of, of what the aliens would do uh, with, the, with the planet, that ended up getting heavily downscoped, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to have a whole bunch of maps that were about confronting the aliens on their version of home ground. Uh-huh. And we only ended up with Crystal High for that one. And that one was a great success, and it was really, I was really happy. But 
but what ended up happening was that the feedback from players was about map variety. And so we decided there was a big discussion within the studio about do we just, you know, do we, so, so my idea was depth, right? Like we're only going to add a few maps, but they're going to be really cool. They're going to be really custom. They're going to really capture the spirit of the aliens. Um, and then the feedback from the players was militating in favor of breadth, right? More and more. More and more and more and more and more maps. Yeah. Like lots and lots and lots of maps. Did people play the game more times through than you guys expected? Is that what happened? Um, or did the maps just burn themselves into people's brains faster? That was it, yeah. It was, it was, it was, well, so yeah, so the game, it wasn't that they played the game through more, it was that, is that individual playthroughs lasted longer than we thought. Mm. So we, we were thinking people would be done with the game in 25 to 30 missions, and it was really more like 33 to 36 missions. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so that is a that is a lot. I don't think I would, I don't think I would aim for that many. That's just, <laughs> well, no, we weren't we weren't aiming for. Well, it. Yeah, we no, def- no, even actually, even your initial estimate. Yeah, because um, each mission is gonna be what half an hour, something like that. Mm, people were getting like, I mean, so veterans get through XCOM missions in eight to ten minutes. Okay, um, modally it's more like twenty, but sure. but. Um, uh, and that increases as the game goes on because the number of aliens goes sure. up. But, but I mean, but but basically we, yeah. So 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 players were getting more of the maps than we thought they were going to get. Yep. Um, and so because we were we were designing around two full playthroughs. Yep. And ultimately we kind of got to more like one and a half full playthroughs. And so on people's second. Four people had to repeat. Maps, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so. Um, <laughs> did you actually record all the maps that people had seen across multiple playthroughs? We did. We okay. did. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And that, that also helped us identify some, some map selection logic issues, which we ended up fixing. But, um, uh, but what we ended up there was, um, so, so, so we ended up, Compromising, where we finished Crystal at Hive because I was very intent that we have at least one mission like that, and then we spent the rest of our map resources on breadth and, right. and expanding the map set. And I think that was the right decision. Uh, and that's an interesting case of where, where there are two extreme positions that were being advanced. Yeah. And typically, you want to avoid the compromise between them. You, yep. you think that neither of them is going to end up good, but in this case, it, the compromise was the right answer. Because Crystal Hive was a very signature experience for a lot of people. Sure. But nonetheless, the, the real value, the real long-term value came from the, uh, came, came from the, the, the variety of maps. And then... Um, well, the nice thing about the variety of maps is it's also it's a low-risk yes. change, right? Yes. Like, you guys, you guys know how to make maps at this point. That's right. Our LD team was able to crank those suckers out, yes. Um, and then obviously HQ Assault. That was the other thing is that we all, we had a couple of, of non-optional maps, high-cost maps we needed, to do, like the HQ Assault. Um, and that was, you know, and, and that was essential that we bring the HQ Assault back. And so, uh, and so the, the fact that the breadth of maps was lower, lower risk was also pretty appealing. Um, for a long time, we had this, this sort of very Baroque espionage system where, you know, the aliens have these, you know, there was a new alien that could, that could sort of mimic or more accurately sort of pod personify the, uh, civilians on the map. Then you had to kind of dodge them and you had to go meet your contact and then you had to either beat the aliens or evac the contact. There was a bunch of different things going on. Um, that didn't hold together very well, especially because there was no really good endpoint for that gameplay. And so pretty late in the process, but early enough, the, um, uh, that became Exalt, where we decided it's a lot simpler and clearer to have Evil XCOM instead. Okay. And um, that was, I mean, it was really instructive when, you know, I would explain, I explained it to 
marketing, right? And so my previous explanations of the of the espionage game, they were like, okay, I think we get it, you know. <laughs> All right, so this is this, the, you know, the who and the what now? Okay, okay, I think so. But then when I when I show them a slide of Evil X coming, like, okay, got it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> marketing can be a good canary in the coal mine. Yes. For like, you know, how your game design is coming across. Yes, yes, it can, and this was this was definitely one of those cases, and so. Um, and so I felt like, uh, and so once, once, once Exalt was in the picture, um, uh, and, and the other thing was that the other thing that, 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 the other design decision that that made clear was originally I was thinking of, of espionage primarily as a strategy layer mechanic with, mm-hmm. with almost no tactical tie-in or just a, a sort of luck-based tactical tie-in, but I felt that to be very unsatisfying. I mean, that's, it would have been a post-luck, a post-action sure. luck. Yep. And with one of your permadeath soldiers, that is not what we wanted yeah. to, not yep. where we wanted to go. And so I was like, look, no, I mean, important things in XCOM are decided by tactical. That's just how this game goes. Right. And so uh, we made the decision to put the covert ops into the tactical layer pretty heavily. And I think that that then said, okay, well, now we need a really robust enemy. You know, and having exalt meant that we could have lots of different exalt troop types. Right. And that all fit together really well. Yeah. And so... Cool. That that was a that was a that was a fun that was a really fun project to work on. That was a very I mean I'm not saying it was the I'm not saying it was a perfect project that we sure. all you know we had problems and wrinkles to deal with, but that was just an incredibly fun project. The team was very motivated. Yep. Um, we expansions we, to successful games are great, really. Yeah. They're really good opportunities. Yeah. Um, well, so you when you talked about the balance between the tactical and strategic, that sort of brings up one thing I, I often like to to mention with with XCOM because um, you know Sid has a number of um, sort of rules of thumb for game design. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with the covert action rule? Uh, you can't have a mini game that takes too long because you forget what the main game is about. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or yeah, I think the simplest way to put it is like two great. One good game is better than two great games. Is, oh right. You know, is sort of pithy way of putting it. Yeah. That's, but that's but yeah, bad. basically like you know trying to get that balance between them and like um, that rule is essentially counter to XCOM. Right, like it's, yeah. it's um, it, you know, it's counter to Total War. I mean, I think Total War has a big problem with that rule in general. Like, I think I haven't sure. really enjoyed those games because of that problem. Um, I think XCOM does kind of hold together, but uh, it is kind of interesting that like that's one of the specific things he often says. And you know, how do you how do you make that balance? You know, when you're working on XCOM. Well, certainly you decide you you have a really clear idea of which one is king, right? right. And the XCOM tactical is king, and so. Um, you know, in strategy in XCOM, everything is everything in strategy is about reminding you of its link to tactical. You know, right. so in research, you are researching stuff. Either you're researching stuff that is sort of there as science fiction narrative points, or you are researching something because it's going to give you better guns, right? right. Um, you know, engineering, you're building the better guns. <laughs> you know, the map, you are shooting down UFOs because you want to loot them right. <laughs> with your guys that have better guns, right? So you are you are doing you know you you are doing strategy is its own game but everything in it is a creature of tactical um and tactical all the stuff that is feeds the strategy layer almost there's almost no decision making there right you wipe the map you get a bunch of artifacts right right great you're thinking about you you know you're really happy to see those artifacts because like oh yeah look 200 illyrium i could totally make that next suit of armor yeah but um you know you didn't choose that 200 illyrium over something else right did I you, think it's very clean. Were there ever sort of game ideas you guys had? They're like, oh, that sounds really cool, but it's really just something about the strategic layer, and it's like. Well, the the original version of espionage definitely was okay. there. Right. It was definitely that. Um, 
I think, uh, uh, there, there are a couple things that are purely about strategy management, like the base layout, you know, so excavating yeah. and the power management and maintenance and stuff. Um, but those, I think those are so intuitive, like, you know, they're so clear and intuitive that I don't think people have to, have to spend too much of their brain space. Like, and, and it's also not something, it's really not something that you, it's because it's so it's so visual that you're like, well, you know, you don't you don't forget what your base layout plan was sure. while you're playing a tactical. So yeah, yeah, I mean, you got to have something, right? Like, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know where to draw the line. Um, but yeah, I guess the good thing is just to like have a philosophy. Of, like, That's right. Um, Sun Tzu said the first rule of strategy is to have one. All right. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Um, so what happened? What happened after? What's happened since? And meet with it. Well. Um, uh, I've been working on some unannounced stuff, right. um, and then I have decided to move on from Fraxis, um, which is a you know I'm I really like working at Fraxis. I love working with all the people there, uh, but uh, a great opportunity has opened up for me that I can't really pass up. So I, uh, that plus a bunch of other sort of non-professional factors, you know, some family stuff, uh, is compelling me to make a move. So I am looking forward to my next. Uh, to my next chapter. Cool, cool. All right. Well, uh, what I usually finish with is I usually ask people, um, you know, so they look back at all the stuff they've worked on. You know, why why do you make games? Why is that the thing that you, you know, dedicate your career to? Oh, um, well, there are a couple. I think there are a couple reasons. One, one is that I think you can do a lot worse in life than by entertaining people. Uh, you know, I think I think entertaining people is an incredibly noble pursuit. And, uh, and I, and games are how I can do that. And so that's, I, I, I think that's one of the reasons. Um, and I think, I think one of the personal, one of my great personal pleasures is, is understanding things from another point of view or from an unexpected point of view. And I think we talked about this earlier in the, in this discussion right. where Games can games can can immerse you and put you into the shoes of someone else in a way that really no, nothing else can. And the opportunity to be able to create that, you know, the opportunity to create that opportunity for players uh, is just very compelling to me. It's very compelling to me, and so I, I would say that's why I make games. I don't anticipate getting tired of it mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> yep. So I, I I think I'll be in it for a while. <laughs> But, and I hope, I hope people, uh, I hope people enjoy and engage with the work that my teams and I have been doing. And, uh, yeah, I, I've been very lucky in my career. I've had the privilege to work on a lot of different kinds of games. I've worked on RTSs. I've worked on turn-based games, strategy and tactical. I've worked on a, on a huge MMO. Uh, I, I've, I've worked on so many different games and types of games that I, I feel like I've had a really great, I, I've been a great omnivore. Sure. And, uh, and cool. I hope to continue. Yeah. Well, what does it, what does it feel like to go to the board game, be geek and see the twilight struggle is the number one rated game. It's, it's a, you know, it's a remarkable feeling, uh, to see it, to see it persist up there year after year. I, it, it makes me feel like Jason and I just succeeded at creating 
this experience you know i mean i mean the, the, the rating the rating is abstract a little bit and it's subject sure. to rules you know mm-hmm. the board game the way the board game it, ratings it, are it generated could float around randomly at some point but right but it's but still there it is there and and just reading the comments on the ratings i feel like i feel like we created a game that that really spoke to people and and it spoke to people in a lot of different ways right it was able to hit just different different uh it's able to scratch different itches for people. You know, there were a lot of people who played Twilight Struggle just for the, for the mechanical challenge of it and, and of the of the of the competitive element. But I'm always talking to people at conventions who who have a personal emotional attachment to an event on one of the cards. You know, people say, "Oh, I worked, I worked on that element of the space race." Oh, the you know, the, I remember the Pershing missiles. You know, um, and you know they were pers- It's full of events that people have some personal involvement with. And I feel like that's also been a huge contributor to its success. And I, th- I feel like it, we were able to create, in some ways more than a game, we were able to create a sort of validation for people who, who experience some of these events in real life mm-hmm. and who, uh, who, who are given this opportunity to reminisce about them. Right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.